The Best of Illimitable Men, the audiobook. Written by Illimitable Man and produced by Life Math Money. Narrated by Andrew Baldwin. Part 1 Becoming a Man. Twenties Men The Quest for Power, the Decade of Empire. The pursuit of power is a fundamentally human drive which knows no exceptions. Every single last human craves power. We are all in competition, all conniving, plotting, designing, participating in the competition of all competitions. Survival via domination. Life. The game of who gets the rights to pass on their genetic lineage and damn well enjoy themselves whilst they're at it. We all seek success. However, success comes at a cost. It comes at the cost of personal sacrifice. It requires self-discipline. It requires zest and motivation. It requires unrelenting selfishness. It requires a sharp, effective mind. But perhaps most sinister of all, it requires you have no qualms in taking power from others. As an old lecturer once said to me, a red pill post-wall woman in her mid-thirties, a little something I'll never forget. Not everyone can be a winner in this life. If everyone was a winner, then who would clean the streets? There is a finite amount of power. Power is relative. Power is measured in comparison to everyone else's. If everybody was equally smart or rich, then the edge being smarter rich gives would be almost negligible. Power is about balance, and thus, if you become more powerful by grabbing opportunity by the bullhorns, then that is an opportunity that someone somewhere else has been deprived of acquiring, lest they directly challenge your position. Power is about being better than other people, and the pursuit of power is fundamental to man, absolutely fundamental, if he ever wishes to respect himself or command respect from others. If he wants to be a leader, Renowned, noteworthy, or, dare I say, even legendary, he must possess power. Life for a man should be about the acquisition of power, and then maintaining and defending said power once it has been acquired. Some people say they don't want power. They are lying, either just to you, or both to you and themselves out of delusion. Everybody wants power. Even women although they may like to be submissive in the presence of masculine power, they also like to influence that power. Their power is indirect. Their power is to control a man's power and have him use his power to benefit her. Power by proxy theory. They do this by trading off on their youth and giving men sexual access to their bodies, which is why, to the bitter dismay of feminists everywhere, female power decreases with age. Women never truly attain their own power. They're always using someone else's. However, I digress. That topic is for another article. Unlike women who should be using their youth to lock down a suitable suitor in their early 20s, preferably an accomplished, successful man in his late 20s or early to mid-30s, a young man of the same age should be doing everything he can to improve his position in the social marketplace. Not just to get laid, but to utilize his own innate potential to evolve and become better than he is. To do the stuff that your average insecure 20-year-old male needs to do to make him respect himself, 
feel productive, and set foot on the path to becoming a man. Your entire 20s as a man should be about actualization, self-improvement, chasing the wind, enriching yourself, improving your skill sets. You are free from commitment and the debilitating burden of family life. You have no responsibilities, no ball and chain, wife or girlfriend. Spin plates for sex, but by dear God, do not have a serious girlfriend if you have serious considerations for power. If you're happy with the level you're at, then that's good for you. Your personal ambition is satiated. But this article is focused on those who want to be at the top, the mega ambitious, those who lust for the trappings of power. Women, being the liabilities that they are, will bring nothing but expectation, drama, and undue stress to your life that will do nothing but hamper, impede, and hold back your efforts to improve yourself. Why even set yourself up for the responsibility that is maintaining a relationship with a woman when you're not even the man you want to be yet? That's fine when you're in your 30s looking to start a family and already have a power base built up from the graft, sweat, and experience of your virile 20s. But firstly, you need to build that power base so that your 30s are enjoyable, not just another decade along the path of a meaningless life culminating in a worthless death. A simple life is a life unfulfilled. How do you build power? Well, I'll start with the obvious and say that internalizing red pill philosophy is very empowering. Seeing things for what they are, rather than what you want them to be, is an incredible commodity in today's society of indoctrinated, unwashed masses. There are fundamental cornerstones which grant a man his power, and these are game. This is the most important element of a man's personal power, not just with women, but with people and existence, full stop. Game is interchangeable with social skills. Gaming and building attraction doesn't just have to mean sexually, but it applies all the same non-sexually too. Think in terms of making people value you and accept you. This is the stuff that builds your social circles, allows you access into other social circles, allows you to network and gets you the job at the interview. It's all about cultivating your personality and being real, not needing to act because you don't like who you are, but actually enriching who you are to be powerful and attractive. Game is developed over the span of one's life and never becomes obsolete or irrelevant. To further subdivide game up into interchangeable elements, it consists of Machiavellianism, knowing how to perceive and play a situation to come out victorious, knowing what's real and what's not, why people are doing what they're doing, knowing when you're being played either as a pawn or as a theatrical fool in someone else's game. Wit. This is what allows you to pass shit tests, essential if you ever want to get anywhere in life. Everyone will shit test you when they first meet you, so they can personally ascribe you value based on their impression of you, your speed of retort, the creativity of your communication, and a successful delivery style are all elements of wit. This is the cornerstone of a strong frame, and is needed for all common shit-busting strategies, e.g. agree and amplify. If your wit sucks, I suggest watching lots and lots of stand-up comedy. Charm. This is simple narcissism, self-confidence, self-assuredness. This is what subtly, or not so subtly, demonstrates non-verbally that you are a high-value person. It is the sense that you are inherently superior. 
It is better to be grounded in reality, because you work hard and are good at certain things, rather than be baseless. However, the only delusion I'll ever endorse for those fresh on the journey to self-improvement? Fake it until you make it. Humor. Another cornerstone of a strong frame, humor is often at the expense of negativity. It produces positive energy from a negative source and communicates non-verbally that you are capable of staring at the face of failure negativity without becoming unhinged by it. Humor shows who are the real tough motherfuckers, and it's the favorite tool for men to use when they're shit-testing other men. One way men form lasting platonic bonds with their fellow man is via humor. Those with sensibilities are weak, sheltered, and emotionally fragile to what merely are words without any real tangible bearing on the paradigm which is their life. If your humor has limits, eradicate them. Humor is a cornerstone of power and influence and ties in closely to charm. Humor can be used a lot in conjunction with agree and amplify. E.g., yeah, I'm so annoying and effeminate, people can't decide whether to call me Justin Bieber or Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus has a way more manly haircut than Justin, though. I hope hers is the nickname that sticks. Money. Good game will help you get money. You need money to build connections and get into the despot networks that hire and promote based on personal favoritism and backscratching. Meritocracy has its limits, as fundamentally, we're all humans seeking power, and a leader at any level of the hierarchy would rather have someone on their side that they like rather than someone who's better educated, but simply fucking annoying to work with or perceived as a threat. E.g., that cliche excuse for rejection that you're overqualified for a job. You can contest this thought and get into notions of meritocracy and blah 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 as you sit there stone broke until payday with no nest egg listening to this article. But when you see that idiotic, vapid dickhead drinking from champagne showers, embracing an oversized bottle of Moet between his legs as if he's subconsciously displaying a phallic symbol for all to admire, I've got a big dick, girls, really, then maybe your idealizations of meritocracy will shatter somewhat and you'll come join us here in reality. Money requires more externally than game. Game is all about your cognitive wiring. Money relies on that, but it also requires an external skill, which others can directly benefit from. It requires something the economy will pay for, because it needs it. If you're going to university, then choose your degree wisely. If it doesn't pay, or even have at least 50% chance of paying, then don't bother doing it. Sure, I like philosophy as much as the next guy. Psychology's kind of cool too. But if you don't want to be working in a grocery store for the rest of your life and want to be a competitor, not a survivor, then you better fucking well study something that pays right or not bother at all. If you're doing a degree in creative writing, you may as well just save up the loan money, live frugally, and default on the loan, if that's possible in your country. Because I can write pretty creatively and I don't have a degree in that shit. Neither do many other writers. Your economic skill doesn't have to be academic. If STEM isn't for you and you're too much of a bitch to get your hands dirty by building, plumbing, being an electrician, or basically becoming one of civilization's builders and maintainers of our mortar, then you could always learn to cook. Quite literally anybody can learn to cook. It's hard work and long hours, but the opportunities are numerous. People always need to eat. It's not an industry that's going anywhere. And it's an art form. If you get really passionate about it and put in the man hours, you can go far. Open a restaurant one day. Write a cookbook. Only you limit yourself. Your mind, your vision, your beliefs. Don't give up your power by not bothering. 
have a focus on a discipline of some sort that makes money and stick with that. Otherwise, you'll be saying, do you want fries with that? Or can I pour you another? Like the little economic bitch boy that you've allowed yourself to become. Insults designed to motivate a side. Game leads to money. And money leads to better game, which leads to more and more money, creating a positive feedback cycle. Poverty is oppressive. It is the opposite of what I just described, a negative feedback cycle. It's what keeps you from ascertaining greatness. Poverty is socially accepted slavery. As in, you work for a paycheck that doesn't liberate you from your condition of drudgery because it demands a high time investment in return for a low financial return. Most people in poverty for much of their life accept their position and die miserable trying to anesthetize themselves with porn, sheep games, and alcohol because they've given up on themselves. Don't be that guy. Be a competitor. More money means more opportunity. More opportunity means more growth. Money is the single most powerful non-sentient object in existence. It is a decimalized measurement of objective power, which each and every life needs to continue to exist. Get money. Lots and lots of fucking money. Philosophically, it means little. As a measurement of power, it means everything. For those who have none, it is everything. For those who have plenty, it is nothing. Because they're already enjoying the lifestyle. Have access, and thus perceive and spend less personally. Again, another topic. I'm a serial digressor. Aesthetics, beauty. This is way more important for a woman than it is a man. But don't think because you're a man, your looks are irrelevant. Beauty privilege is a real thing. Good-looking people get perks. Ugly people don't. Sure, you can get one-night lays and be an ugly motherfucker in the right situations, but we're talking about power here. Not simply getting laid on one random night where logistics are right and you demonstrate high enough value in other areas. Why neglect one cornerstone of power when you can be even more powerful by giving this area its due attention? It goes without saying. Go down to the gym. Not only does it increase your strength physically, but it improves how you look. It gives you a body you feel you can look at and respect. It increases your testosterone and your drive, mentally invigorating you as you get stronger and stronger. Maintain your hair, facial and head hair. A badly groomed man makes an ugly man. Dress well. A poorly dressed man communicates low status in the sense that he is either poor, stupid, or both. People judge us very much so on our superficialities, so be sure to overcome everything you have control over. If you're a midget, you're cock small, or you have some chronic non-treatable condition or deformity, then you're going to have to deal with it. That's life. Compensate in other ways. These things will stop you from achieving a perfectionist ideal of power because their drawbacks are significant. However, they will not stop you from being powerful if you've got your mind right. So don't use that shit as an excuse to cop out and give up. If you give up on yourself, then enjoy being powerless, because nobody else gives a fuck. Practical skill sets. While you're young, you learn at your quickest. The older you get, the harder it is to learn, and the slower you learn specifically useful skills, e.g. foreign languages. So get it out of the way right now. ASAP. Treat your learning like a women's biological clock running out of eggs. Get it done, and get it done whilst the conditions are at their best. It's never too late, but why make life any harder than it needs to be? 
Examples of skill sets which boost your social market value significantly are having an understanding of any discipline, e.g. cooking, building, plumbing, DIY, car mechanics, etc. Dancing. Basically, it's a human mating call. Choose a style that suits your personality. Speaking multiple languages. Shows intelligence, sophistication, and opens up social circles which would otherwise be closed to you due to language barriers, e.g. my Spanish crew, my Arab boys, etc. Contrary to popular ignorant Anglosphere belief, there's a lot of likable people who could enrich your life that don't know English. And of course, an entire ocean of pussy. The application and demonstration of physical strength. Martial arts. Although it is a physical discipline, it is psychologically different from the other disciplines listed. Knowing how to kick the shit out of people does a lot for a man's sense of confidence, and thus his attractiveness to everyone around him. You can protect you and yours. Anybody who messes with you or your friends will face a force to be reckoned with. If there's ever a zombie apocalypse, you can go down snapping some heads off. There's no reason to neglect this if it's something every man can work on and acquire. It goes without saying that all these goals are easier to accomplish without a serious long-term girlfriend monopolizing your precious neurons with her phatic, unimportant babble and irrational, emotionally concophonous, small-minded concerns. You're looking at the bigger picture. Your average 20s girl is thinking about getting dicked by an alpha, what she should wear, why did she feel that way earlier, and how will she feel if she does such and such? What do her friends think of her? Bloody fucking blah. Fuck that noise. Spin them as plates, but don't give away significant commitment until you hit your 30s. That way, you can clean up on the hot young 20-somethings and have your pick of the litter, because your SMV will be sky high. It's tough to be a man. You have to work for it. You don't bust out into the world with a low-cut top at 18 being the object of desire for 50% of the population. It takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, as well as years upon years of both economic and personal graft. This is why your 20s isn't your time to have fun because you're young, but it's your time to build your life and become the man that you want to be. If you're not going to do it now while you're at your most malleable and most energetic, when the fuck are you going to do it? In your 30s? Your 40s? Forever a teenager condemned to playing Xbox and masturbating to porn streams? You can do that. Plenty do. And what they get to enjoy is a limited existence. You'll never get powerful being that guy. Although you may find joy in the acceptance of your comfortable monotony, your rut. To sum it up, it goes without saying. Use your 20s to become the man you want to be. To acquire power of all and any kind. In your 30s, enjoy the power you've accrued. And enjoy being the man you've built supplementing and maintaining what you've built so that you can enjoy it way into your 40s. The quest for power is never truly over, but a 20s man has a long way to go before he becomes powerful enough to be in the top 5%. Aim high, fuckers. Your elders, especially the accomplished ones, may fear you out of self-preservation, but play your cards right and they will mentor you with experience and resources. Seeing a younger version of them within you. Godspeed, my brothers. Understanding Social Market Value What is SMV? SMV is known as Social Market Value, or more commonly, Sexual Market Value. 
It is the inherent value of a person. The crude 1 to 10 rating of where a person is in the social hierarchy. In the context of social market value, this encompasses friends, colleagues, contacts, acquaintances, etc. How many do you have? How well connected are you? Can you use nepotism to get ahead, or are you reliant purely on the whims of meritocracy? Sexual market value is the same thing, but within the context of your sexual attraction and viability for mate investment. SMV is not concrete, or even absolute per se, but it is rather dualistic within its nature, as fundamentally it is both tangible and non-tangible. You have perceptive social market value, which is what people, including yourself, believe your SMV to be based upon their personal interactions with you, and with yourself, your own self-esteem and sense of validation. This is the illusory factor the glazing to the substance of who you are and what you're worth. These are things such as how you behave and how you carry yourself. Carrying yourself as a concept is basically demeanor and self-control combined into one. Perceptive social market value can lead people to think you're a few points higher or a few points lower down the scale than you really are. The absence of information, aka mysteriousness, can also force people to rationalize, or hamster, that you're higher value than you are, causing them to fill in blanks about the substance of who you really are, such as believing you earn more money than you do, have more contacts than you actually have, or are more sexually desired by the opposite gender than is truth. Inversely, it can also have the opposite effect. It can lead people to think you are less desirable than you are by merit of your reluctance to disclose too much, the assumption you are ashamed of something hidden or somehow shifty, so should you be practicing mysteriousness, be it to raise attraction in women or to maintain your privacy from those whom you do not trust. Be sure to prod those probing you for knowledge on your life into a direction which forces them to make positive assumptions about you rather than negative ones. This way, you can manipulate the perception of your SMV to be a few points higher rather than a few points lower. Make your perceived social market value work for you, not against you because it's doing one or the other. This shit right here, this is the stuff of rumors and gossip. Then there's actual social market value. This consists of tangible things that cannot be refuted, such as your conventional physical attractiveness, your financial wealth, and skill sets you possess, such as languages spoken, instruments played, martial arts known, etc. Actual social market value is easy to discern. You write a list out of every asset you own, every valuable skill you possess, and everything that's positive, esteemed, or commodified about you by wider society. If what you have or can do is in demand or coveted as desirable by others, then it is inherently a high-value possession or trait. If the element in question is not in demand or coveted, then it does nothing for your value in wider society. Group Dynamics once you have your place in a social group after the introductions have occurred and you've been analyzed, tested, judged, and given a position, your place within that group is then set in stone. However, with some difficulty, one can re-chisel parts of the initially ascribed judgment from the metaphorical stone. One's social status and pecking order within a specific group is in a state of incremental flux. Actions which demonstrate high value increase the perception of you positively bit by bit. Actions which demonstrate low value increase the perception of you negatively bit by bit. 
try not to get confused with my usage of positive and negative. Positive doesn't correlate to nice, and negative doesn't correlate to nasty. If you do something negative, say, you ditch a member of the group when you're out together because they're disregarding you, then that negative action demonstrates high social market value. I won't put up with your shit. Whilst inversely, tolerating their antisocial transgression and even going as far to allow yourself to commit to this person's safety and getting them home safely when they give no fucks about you and are having the time of their life demonstrates low SMV. You're more important than I am, and therefore I'm going to sacrifice my time and happiness to make your life better. It's supplicative, subservient, and does not elicit respect in anyone, neither women nor men with a particular focus on women. Women are more likely to exploit your weakness or niceness for their own gain, if for any reason, out of feminist-fueled ego and self-entitlement. If you aren't a respectable man who will ravish a woman, then what are you to her? A tool, a wallet, logistical support, a babysitter, etc., etc. When a woman doesn't respect a man, he's not a man to her. Hence all this shit about boys and men. When a man isn't respected by a woman, he's either a tool to be exploited or he's baggage, which is to be detested and shunned. Women are very superficial and judgmental of men based on their SMV. Your physique, your wealth, your popularity, your fucking height. They're discriminant creatures. These factors are all tangible things which increase both your social and sexual market value. Back to the topic at hand. You can essentially be very high status in one group, whilst of mild or even low status in another. This is due to whom the group is made up of, and what they desire and expect. It's about relativity. Your SMV is affected in relevance by the competition, and thus your SMV within a social circle is affected by the status of everybody else within the group. If the standards are low in the group, and you're at least average, then you'll be perceived as having high SMV to that particular group. If in the other group the standards were exceptionally high and your average SMV, you'll be perceived as having low SMV in that group. Like I said, it's all relative. Going to the gym and getting ripped wouldn't mean shit if 99% of men were ripped. It would be more of an obligation than it would be an advantage. To exemplify what I mean about the perception of SMV, Let's use the variable of intellectualism as an example. In groups where, say, nobody has a university-level degree and you yourself have one from a respectable field, to them, you would seem smart, knowledgeable. Because in relation to them, stereotypically, you'll know more random crap than they do. That's not always the case, but for the sake of the example, let's say it is. To rebalance this perception, you'd need to play dumb for an extended period of time, and then frame your initial intelligence as being the device of some effort to impress on your part. Keep up the pretense of stupidity for long enough, and eventually the group would accept you're not all that smart. Whether being smart or stupid within that particular group is a good thing or not is subjective, and based upon the needs and perceptions of the group. So, simply put, this could increase your value in some circles, whilst decrease it vastly in others. This is how you re-chisel the initially inscribed perception of yourself. The old facet of yourself people were so convinced was smart, now with great effort, energy, and time expenditure on your part, can be changed to make them believe that in actual fact, you're not that smart. Remember, 
you haven't actually lost any intelligence. You're just merely altering that social circle's perception of what they think your intelligence is. Often, one has to ask themselves a question in relation to this. Is this social circle even worth expending all this energy on? Will the effort outweigh the reward? If the answer is no, and a simple cost-benefit analysis returns higher cost than benefit, then logic would suggest that you ditch said social circle for richer pastures. Quite simply, like in finance, the return is too low to return a yield worthy of investment. There is such a thing as knowing when to quit or cutting your losses. You have to be willing to lose or quit to come out on top sometimes. When a social circle does not work for you, but rather you for it, altering the perception of your SMV is something of an inane endeavor. The group likes what you bring, so it keeps you in the group, e.g. resources, but they don't respect you for what you bring because of how you carry yourself, e.g. easily pushed around and manipulated. These are the toxic social circles, which, if you've been silly enough to find yourself in, you need to ditch. Now, exit. Fast. Any stragglers from the group who want to remain in your orbit and facilitate one-on-one relationships with you are, of course, welcome to do that, presuming you equally value that individual to some measurable extent. After all, it's not personal to the individual in question. Unless with that individual it is. Really, you're looking at the circle as a whole, looking out for your own interests and leaving the circle because it was not working for you, but you for it. And thus, it was too psychologically unprofitable to redress the imbalance. If you are being socially exploited, respect yourself and make it stop. It is a fundamental building block to building confidence and ego. This includes your job. If your job is self-deprecating or demeaning, try to find one that offers you better working conditions. Letting a job suck up your soul just so you can get by is no life. It's a hostage situation. It's easier to join new social circles and go for off-the-bat perception of high value than it is to contest the perception of your status in an already established circle. The old adage, first impressions count, rings a bell here. Our ancestors, they were wise people. Pre-liberalism, the red pill, was called common sense. Your time is precious and limited. You will not be young, in good health, and fast learning forever. Things that are most difficult, arduous, and challenging, e.g. learning a language, getting fit at the gym, etc., are best tackled at the youngest age possible when your brain is at its quickest, your hormones at their best ratios, and your energy levels are at their highest. Relating this to SMV, if it will take too much energy to fix a bad reputation or otherwise fix a perception of low status within a group, don't contest it, just forget it. You have better shit to do, such as improving yourself rather than begging for validation and approval from one specific social circle. Even when you are already a high-value individual, not everyone will appreciate what you bring to the table. Not everyone's attracted to the same things. This goes beyond merely women, but counts for friendships and business contacts, too. Some people have game-breakers, which turn out to be deal-sealers for others, e.g. being intelligent. Diversity is ironic like that. The guy-girl you know who is friends with everyone simply projects different images to different people, a social mirror, a chameleon. This creates a mirage of someone being alpha or desirable through similarity and shared interest, but really, 
It's a manifestation of insecurity and weakness. Whilst the ability to be so deceiving is certainly beneficial to one's survival from a Machiavellian perspective, the lack of congruence in identity and the overwhelming need to be validated by others screams insecurity. Unless this is targeted specifically to achieve an agenda, spontaneous, needless manifestation of such behavior is weak and ill-contrived. Don't try to be everyone's friend. It's insecure and suspicious. Instead, you improve yourself so much that your value is high and everyone is trying to be your friend instead. The red pill goes along with the premise that if you are high value, you will make friends, get laid, find more success, and attain fulfillment. However, what is high value to some is perceived as low value to others because they feel threatened by those traits or are ignorant or arrogant to them. For example, keeping with the earlier example of intelligence, many people don't like people who seem smart because they think you could undermine their power. And on an emotional level, you can make them feel inferior to you. This is why they feel safer trusting an inferior and socializing with people who aren't smart. Your intelligence is seen as a threat via projection of their insecurity. Likewise, many people don't like a person who's an aesthetic 10 out of 10 because they feel they can't compete for mates in their presence. They envy the 10 out of 10 person's beauty privilege and the dividends it pays off because it seems unfair and puts them at a tactical disadvantage in fulfilling their own mating strategy. It's not as black and white as, be high value and you will lead everywhere you go, but certainly at all costs, one should pursue as much self-improvement as possible so that they can have their fingers in as many pies as possible. Diversify your portfolio of interests, spin many plates, have varying hobbies, fill up your time. And when one thing inevitably fails, and it will, your social market value will remain high because like a conglomerate corporation, your investments are diverse and many, not relying on the niche of a single market. As we say in England, you should never have all your eggs in one basket. Yes, you see, before all this liberal bullshit, the people of England came up with some fucking great proverbs, which still hold true even today. Monk mode. Stronger, smarter, more refined. To progress again, man must remake himself. And he cannot remake himself without suffering, for he is both the marble and the sculptor. In order to uncover his true visage, he must shatter his own substance with heavy blows of his hammer. Alexis Carl. Monk mode is a self-improvement framework for improving your worth, and in turn, increasing the quality of person you are. Many people fail to integrate self-improving habits into their life because they have psychological hurdles they struggle to overcome and are easily distracted by nonsense that confers them no benefit. Monk mode is about mitigating distraction and focusing solely on self-betterment by filling up your time with activities that improve you as a human being. Naturally, such an endeavor is going to demand sacrifice. However, the rewards you reap, the sense of direction you gain, and the power you feel from the self-control you'll exercise will feed your growth immeasurably, in turn, passively increasing your self-esteem and outward confidence. The Sacrifice you're going to be minimizing your time contribution to social obligations and junk activities. The reason for this is because these activities consume much of your time 
whilst yielding little to negligible increase towards your social market value. Monk mode is a serious commitment that is not to be half-assed. You're either doing it or you're not. It'll be a struggle in the beginning, but once you're fully engaged, it becomes a beneficial, productive, and dare I say, even addictive lifestyle. When I talk about junk activities, this is the kind of thing I'm referring to. Going out for coffee or sitting around idly. Playing video games. Watching marathons of television series and movies. Watching porn. Constantly refreshing social media and internet forums. Being out of action with a hangover, coming down from alcohol or drug consumption. All these activities are distractive or masturbatory. They confer no benefit in the long run, but are fleetingly pleasing in the short term. Entertainment is necessary to cool off from periods of hard work, but leading a life of continuous instant gratification leads to nowhere but a path of regret and failure. If all you do is distract yourself by spending your time on junk activities, there'll be no time left for the things that really matter, activities that build long-term value. One cannot hope to have high social value without investing in themselves. And this is exactly what monk mode is, a commitment to maximize your capabilities to whatever esoteric limit it is they're capped at. Cutting your social time to a bare minimum is incredibly important, more important than you may think. It's nigh impossible to lead a productive life when people are telling you their problems, gossiping, and introducing otherwise vapid and unimportant nonsense into your life. It's all too easy to get caught up in a whirlwind of banality. Because let's face it, if you're low value, the people you know will be too. Winners don't hang out with losers. If you accept you're a low value human being, but you want to rectify this and become better, cutting off mundane people is crucial. Mundane people, also known as average people, don't share your ambition and will jealously deride you every step of the way on your path to self-betterment. Minimizing distractions is crucial. Low-quality people, low-quality media, you need to quarantine yourself from all of it. And it is only then you'll be able to focus on channeling your desire to be better into real-life gains. Because instead of walking around in a half-sentient stupor, you'll have a rough plan for productive living and execute it to the best of your ability. A brief but relevant tangential interjection on self-respect. If you hate yourself, or do not value yourself, it's because you've not given yourself a reason to value yourself. We don't just disrespect others who are low value, we disrespect ourselves for it too. The exception to this is those with narcissistic personality disorders that make the individual delusional about their own value. If the bulk of your time goes on junk activities, you'll be directionless. There will be no feedback loops in your life to give you self-esteem. There will be an absence of activity where you push yourself, see a small gain, get validated by your small gain, and then feel the resulting pride that comes from being better at something and seeing yourself grow in some small way. As humans, we are meant to grow, to flourish, to actualize. We desire growth and live for growth. For without growth, we feel purposeless. In the absence of growth, we flounder. When junk activities start to comprise the majority of your time expenditure, you rob yourself of the opportunity to grow. The higher your social value, the more you will come to value your time by merit of recognizing your abilities and possessing a resulting self-respect as such. High value or not, 
We all have a finite amount of time until we die. And every second wasted is a missed opportunity feeding into a sense of lethargy and mediocrity. Now back on topic to monk mode. The core structure of monk mode is based on the three I's. Introspection, isolation, and improvement. Monk mode is a temporary form of MGTOW. By cutting yourself off from the rest of the world for a while, you can fine-tune your focus, calibrate your direction, and confront yourself. You'll be acknowledging your weaknesses, and then formulating a plan of action to deal with them. For the things that can't be fixed, such as being born ugly, mitigate them with damage control. Work out, get stylish haircuts, dress well, etc. Introspection is to look inward, to evaluate oneself. You're going to be identifying your weaknesses, making yourself aware of them, and then accepting them. Rather than hide, begrudgingly coexist with, or deny your weaknesses, you must acknowledge them and accept them. Only by doing this can you gain the power to rid yourself of such afflictions. Accepting your weaknesses allows you to own your flaws rather than permitting them to imprison you within a negative mental feedback loop of helplessness. The most unintelligible thing a person can do, and the average person does this all the time, is to ignore one's weaknesses. Weaknesses are ignored out of ego, out of emotion, to sustain your sense of being and whatever shaky foundation of self-confidence it is that you have. However, it is this willful ignorance of such weakness that amounts to nothing more than a shoddy, farcical fabrication of confidence. It's not pure, rational confidence, but delusional, narcissistic confidence. By not addressing your weaknesses, you allow them to take control of you in whatever manner it is they manifest. Rather than patch up the hole in your armor, you're pretending there's no hole there at all. And thus, by ignoring the problem, you only grant it the opportunity to extend its foothold within your psyche, damaging your chances of success and happiness. A conscious denial of an accepted truth for the sake of one's ego leaves you vulnerable to the potency of the truth. A core part of red pill philosophy is to be harmonious with the truth, so that the truth is fighting on your side rather than against you at the side of your enemies. Whoever is congruent with the truth can monopolize the truth and expose liars. Those who are reliant upon fabrications must expend massive energy on maintaining their facade. As someone who lives harmoniously with the truth, you need not expend such energy, giving you a further edge. When a person tries to use one of your weaknesses against you, aware of the truth, the power of embarrassment will be absent, and you will be able to keep composure, hold frame rather than let a scrupulous detractor rob you of your power within the primacy of the moment. You need to be honest with yourself so that you know what you're working with. Without awareness, you cannot hope to achieve success. On a Machiavellian tangent, nobody lucks into success contrary to what they may have led you to believe about their accomplishments. Isolation is necessary to encourage an amplification of focus and a fortification of one's personal direction. Handling social politics, such as relationships, logistics, people's feelings, and yada yada, is burdensome on one who is looking to mitigate or otherwise eradicate their weaknesses whilst working to enhance their strengths. You have a certain number of things you can contend with at one time. Social obligations will quickly obliterate your workload and leave you feeling overwhelmed when you're looking to achieve loftier goals. 
It's important that one has their own space and the freedom to self-govern and direct their desires. And a modicum of solitude is necessary to achieve this. With awareness of one's weaknesses comes the clarity of self-determination. With a clearer and more lucid mind, the path to accomplishing higher desires becomes more obvious and self-evident. Confusion is an affliction which causes many to float along in life, lost, without any real purpose or goals. You do not want to be one of these people, the average person. In order to achieve greatness, you need clearly obtainable goals, an awareness of your position, and the peace, space, and freedom to determine your self-governance, independent of undue external manipulatory influence. Without the conflict of social obligation or the descent of outside opinion, you are free in isolation to forge yourself into the very thing that you want to be. What you want for yourself is more important than what anybody else wants you to be. Through introspection, should you not already know it, you will deliberate until you know exactly what it is you want to achieve. Ultimately, you're the one who is stuck with yourself for the rest of your days, forced to endure whatever weaknesses or failures that you may or will have due to inaction. It is thus up to you to be responsible for your own happiness and dictate to yourself what needs to be done to actualize your desires. The influence of others has the potential to be beneficial, but for the sake of monk mode, we will assume the precedent that the majority of external influence is absent in value, and thus incongruent with the diction of your planning. Others can aid you in your goals, such as a personal trainer, or should you be still undecided of your direction despite much introspection, trusted advisors. However, nobody should be dictating what those goals are and making decisions on your behalf, such as your parents or people who have a vested interest in you not improving yourself. You shall be your own planner, and you shall plan diligently. Do not underestimate the importance of isolation if you're a social animal, for it is most necessary in order to ensure success. Introspection and isolation make up what are the psychological components of monk mode. They are the processes which, when successfully enacted, allow a man of procrastination to forcefully impose his will upon the world, to take action where others merely theorize. You must become a doer, a mover, a player. You must become a man of action rather than allow yourself to be one of inaction. Improvement. Refer to Maslow's hierarchy of needs for an illustration of what your immediate life priority should look like, starting with the physiological and moving upwards. Note the inclusion of sex in the physiological category. I believe this primarily refers to an orgasm in the literal sense, which can be masturbation. This is not the same as sexual intimacy as shown in the love-belonging category. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a triangle with five levels each build upon one another. The lowest level, the foundation, is physiological. This consists of breathing, food, water, sex, sleep, homeostasis, and excretion. The next level above that is safety, which is security of body, employment, resources, morality, the family, health, property. The next level above this is love, belonging, which is friendship, family, sexual intimacy. The next level above that is esteem, which is self-esteem, confidence, achievement, respect of others, respect by others. And the top level is self-actualization, 
which consists of morality, creativity, spontaneity, problem-solving, lack of prejudice, and acceptance of facts. Self-improvement activities are things such as lifting, jogging, or playing a sport, a workout of some kind, tidying and cleaning your room. If your ground zero is spotless, it will do wonders for your mental state. Learning a language increases your skill base and opens up foreign social circles. Learn from nonfiction books. They're especially good for turning wasted commute time into productive time. If you're a student of some kind, study hard. Don't waste the opportunity. Be good at your specialty, and you can make money from it if you're in the top percentile. Learn a martial art or instrument. Learn to be funny. Great for making friends and easing social awkwardness. And learn to cook. Use recipe books, trial and error. Very important to aid nutrition and fuel that your gym gains. The younger you are when you begin investing in yourself, the better. That doesn't mean if you're not young anymore that you should just give up on the idea, however. If you're 40 years old and only just realizing you've wasted most of your life up until this point, then it's better to turn around now and start making a change rather than doing it at 50. Once you hit 50, you only would have said, shit, I've known this crap since I was 40, I should have done something back then, and then compounded your own sense of frustration further. It's like compound interest, albeit more inadvertently masochistic. Control the time you have left on this earth, and make it valuable, or you will have to live with insufferable pangs of regret until your deathbed. You need to maximize the efficacy of your time. Time is your most valuable commodity, and it's incredibly finite. Like an hourglass, it trickles down. Except unlike an hourglass, you can't turn it around and start again if you've wasted the sand granules that have already dropped on pointless shit. You have one continuing trickle of sand that symbolically represents the fleetingness of your existence on Earth. And that's it. So use your chance at life wisely if you want it to have purpose and are to attain some semblance of self-actualization. Practicing your social skills is important. Too much reclusiveness results in rusty social skills and reduced articulacy. If you fear your social skills may be deteriorating, then go out intermittently. However, socializing should not feature prominently within your calendar until you reach the top 10% of men. Even then, once you make it to the top, you need to be wary not to grow complacent and lose what you've built for yourself as a man of ever-increasing social value. In high-society social circles, Business is often mixed with pleasure. Bear the importance of that in mind. When choosing friends, surround yourself with funny people. People who can take a joke and aren't overly defensive. I personally make it a habit to talk to people with a keen wit or a sophisticated sense of humor, as well as watching stand-up comedy in my leisure time. Yes, even in my leisure time, I like to passively learn from other people's wit. Comedy should be important to you as comedy is medicine for the soul. Comedy can stop a man in pain from turning insane. Immerse yourself in the world of comedy, and the world of comedy will do your state of mind wonders. Not taking serious matters too seriously is a great coping mechanism for aiding one's mental endurance. Use comedy as a painkiller to aid you in your journey of self-improvement if you need it to take off the edge. It's a far healthier way to spend your downtime versus drinks and drugs. Leaving monk mode and utilizing your gains. How do you know when you're ready to leave monk mode? It's simple. You will manage to resist junk activities and sustain self-improvement as your modus operandi, factory setting. 
It could take you a long time to reach this state. It depends on your starting point and, more importantly, your self-discipline. Monk mode is as much about learning self-discipline as it is engaging in self-improvement. When you manage to sustain monk mode as a way of life, you'll be on your way to cultivating a lifestyle of success. You will be wrapped up in the self-importance of improving all the facets in your life, managing them with a keen eye and watching all your personal investments flourish, much like a stock portfolio. Your schedule will be so packed that you won't have time to waste on low-quality, frivolously time-hungry exercises. If someone's got something going on and you know you'd get more done doing your own thing, then keep doing your own thing. You are the basis for your sense of direction. Don't get drawn in by other people's whims. You should never feel like being the tag-along. You have the ambition, the vision, and the determination to keep moving towards the top. Your time is far too valuable to even contemplate wasting it as a tag-along. Leaving monk mode with your SMV gains does not mean you can become stagnant in your endeavors. Retain your hunger for betterment, no matter what level you're at. This is the defining quality, successful maintenance of one's SMV, between someone who is doing great and sustains the greatness achieved through monk mode, and someone who was doing all right and has now fallen off the wagon and begun to relapse. Do not accept half measures from anybody, but most importantly, do not tolerate it from yourself. Stop being your own worst enemy, free your mind, and begin actualizing. Addendum. A book I really recommend in helping you refine your focus, ambition, and general direction towards a certain direction or career path in life is Robert Greene's book, Mastery. Mastery is a practical guide to becoming successful in your chosen field, giving historical examples of masters, gaining apprenticeship, and refining your focus to maintain a relentless motivation. Such a book would make a great read as part of your monk mode endeavor. And I would even go so far as to say it would help you with disciplining yourself to stay in monk mode by helping you figure out what you want out of life, rather than monk mode just being this thing that you did that one time. Champion's Mentality. How to Stop Being a Loser and Become Epic. Mastery of the Self is, really, the ultimate form of mastery. Robert Greene. Number one, introduction. When I wrote Monk Mode, my intent was to communicate on a practical level to losers how to stop being a loser. I used to be a loser. I personally devised and tested Monk Mode. It helped me massively, so I shared my findings with others. Now, there's some controversy surrounding Monk Mode, mainly concerning when one should use Monk Mode and if monk mode is being used by introverts as an excuse not to socialize. Although I will address these questions and concerns eventually, they fall outside the purview of this article. If you're broke and have no friends, your first protocol is not to make friends. It's to get enough to discipline to master a hobby, and then flip this skill into making some money. This is monk mode. You can't focus on others when you need to build yourself up from nothing. People who aren't losers and rely on networking to do business don't understand this. But monk mode was never written with them in mind. It was written for losers. If you lack discipline, don't have much going for yourself, and are distracted by nonsense social activities rather than building yourself, 
I highly recommend Monk Mode. That being said, Monk Mode is not for everyone. Monk Mode is life support for losers who need to prevent themselves from drowning in an abyss devoid of discipline and dominated by depression. Monk Mode is a route out of the gutters of hell, a long and winding path of redemption for the mediocre who've decided enough is enough. So what's the next step after Monk Mode? Let's assume you've used Monk Mode, are no longer a complete loser, but still aren't killing it in life. What key ingredient are you missing? What do you need to give you that extra edge? You need a champion's mentality. This article will tell you how to get one, as well as demonstrate its attitude. Champion mentality is about optimizing your life and relationships so that you continuously win, improve, and raise your value. Inevitably, by merit of accomplishment and the achievement-based narcissism that accompanies it, such a lifestyle leads to a higher quality of life spiritually, socially, and financially. Number two, monk mode recap. People who create are more interesting than people who don't because they apply their essence to an art form. In doing this, they add value to themselves. They are more developed human beings and thus more interesting. People who do nothing but consume are basic people who have no real value. Most of their interests, and thus what they talk about, is vicarious and based on the achievements of others. Losers live through other people. Winners live through themselves. Losers invest in nothing. Winners don't stop investing. Winners invest in themselves before investing in others. Losers are interested in everything, but have no actual value to invest. So how does a loser stop losing? Minimize hobbies that are consumptive and acquire hobbies that are productive. It's really that simple. Switch Netflix for reading, writing, or coding. I'm not going to babysit you with examples and brainstorm a hundred different hobbies that are productive, so you can lazily pick one you like the sound of. Part of being a winner is doing the mental legwork. However, if you're ailed by the creative capacity of a damp towel, I will note some generalized examples to get you started. Martial arts, musical instruments, and languages. Assess your life by looking at the activities you engage in. Now, categorize which activities create value, and which feel good but don't really enhance your value as a person. Now cut out and reduce the things in the consumption category, and replace those activities with those that build value. Number three, consume less, produce more. It's funny. Average people blame the rich for their problems instead of becoming more like them. This is why they keep losing. If you are poor and have no marketable skills or value, rather than waste time whining online about how one percenters need taxing more to subsidize your pathetic existence, how do you take responsibility for yourself and become more like them? It's incredibly simple. Get a hobby. Get good at it. Monetize it. And as it scales up, you will find yourself succeeding. All of a sudden, you're the winner who doesn't want to be taxed more, rather than the loser expecting the state to steal from the rich for you. If you don't have your own business, you don't have as much freedom as somebody who does. You probably don't enjoy what you do either. Some people enjoy their jobs, but this is besides the point. You don't get rich on a salary. You get rich by having a successful business idea and scaling it up. It's not the only way to get rich, but it's the most common way. 
Developing a hobby for X number of years and then monetizing it into a product or service once you're competent is how businesses are built and rat races are escaped. If you don't spend your spare time developing a skill that you can master enough to monetize, you won't start a business. And thus, you'll always be massaging another man's balls for a living. Taking a monthly salary from another man is horrible. When you make another man rich, you are undervalued, and only one person pays you. When you make yourself rich, you get what you're worth, and hundreds or even thousands of people are paying you by buying your product or service. If you're in the prior category, you're a slave. If you're in the latter, you're a free man. Common sense isn't common, because average people never got the memo. When you read the words on this page, intuitively it will sound like common sense that should go without saying. I should be preaching to the choir, and in doing so stating the obvious and making myself look like a resounding idiot. And yet, if people actually applied this wisdom, we'd have more winners than losers in this life. Most people you pass on a day-to-day basis are losers. They are everywhere. It's an epidemic. What do you think they do when they get home? Sit down? watch Netflix, bash one out, and lays around being mediocre. They piss all their time away on nonsense, but then believe the reason they're failing at life is because they're unlucky. Pathetic. They are losers because they don't invest in themselves. It's that simple. Hobbies where you consume rather than produce are junk hobbies, much like pizza and Red Bull. They should be used in moderation. Gaming? Consuming. Shopping? Consuming. Baking, producing. Writing, producing. This doesn't mean never game, shop, or have fun. Basic binary thinkers miss the point and think all this focus on self-improvement and productivity is advocating a boring type A personality that never has fun. It isn't. It means if you want to be a winner, you have to do consumptive things far less than productive things. Make this a habit and a way of life and you will see both your quality of life and bank balance rise. It's this simple, yet most find it difficult to achieve. To apply the Pareto principle to having fun, 80% of your time should be spent on producing, whilst 20% is spent on consumption. As a bonus, when you actually become good at the thing you produce, you'll have fun doing it. This allows you to have fun and produce simultaneously. Number four. Enjoying work. Losers without any skills need to consume to have fun because they lack the value necessary to enjoy life without indulging in someone else's value. A talented coder, for instance, has his own value. When he works on an app, he has a lot of fun doing it, despite the challenge it represents. He can work and have fun at the same time. This is the hallmark of a winner. Losers can't do this, so they don't understand it. Whilst a loser could never conceive of the fun inherent to producing, since to a loser, all work is equally soul-crushing, winners know exactly what I'm talking about. Work can be fun. Work stops being work when you love what you do and you're good at it. This is why it pays dividends in happiness and general quality of life to monetize a hobby. There's no point being rich if you're too miserable to enjoy it. There's no point to money you can't enjoy. So if you want to be rich and happy, achieving it via a hobby is the way to go. Become an expert pianist, fighter, writer, whatever. When you find something you absolutely love, 
You work hard without feeling exhausted from the undertaking. You enjoy your work so much that your work does not feel like work. It feels like something you do anyway, but just so happen to get paid for. Because your work is a hobby you've monetized, you will work hard and not feel like you're working, which means low stress, high happiness, and a well-fed wallet. For people with the necessary work ethic, this is highly attainable. To losers, it sounds like a myth, because they can't imagine a life that doesn't consist of being miserable. Number five, escape the crab bucket and avoid victim mentality. If you're born in a crab bucket, the first thing you must do is escape and seek lessons from winners. To losers, nothing's their fault. They rationalize their inferiority by shifting blame to those they're jealous of. They're pathetic. Losers are socialists and people who think the world owes them something. Nothing is their fault. Everything bad that happens to these people is the fault of people more successful than them. These people must be avoided at all costs. The thing that keeps people poor the most is other poor people filling their minds with shit. You must detach. If you're born to losers, they teach you how to be a loser, not a winner. You must detach and reprogram yourself. Losers keep you down with misinformation. Then, when by your own defiance you make it out, they try to take the credit for your successes. Pathetic. The very people who hold you back are the same people who want you to remember them when you make it. The people who doubt you are the same people who have their hand out when you make it. They are disloyal, pathetic, and do not belong in your life. If you were born a loser, were surrounded by losers, and made it out, it isn't the losers that got you out. It was you. You don't owe them a cent. Losers always try to guilt trip you, because if you are foolish enough to fall for it, they can pillage you. Losers complain, Once he made it, he forgot about us and never came back. He betrayed his roots. Why did he do that? Because associating with losers is dumb. The people saying this will try to drag him down once he's made it. And it's his awareness of this that prevents him from continued association. Of course, being the losers that they are, these people are completely ignorant to this. They just think the escaped crab is an asshole. Let them think that. But their opinions are as worthless as they are. Number six, on losers. Poverty is just turning the difficulty up on the game. You know why the poor stay poor? Scarcity mindset. The truly worthy always get what they deserve, but plenty of people get less than they feel they deserve. Do you know why? Because they're not Machiavellian enough. Those illiterate in matters of power idiotically work hard for another man their entire lives, so all they have to show for their effort when the curtain calls is a mountain of debt. This is incredibly sad and is not the mark of a life well lived. If you work hard, but not intelligently, you can still be broke. Clever people don't just work hard, they also work intelligently. They know they need to work for themselves as soon as they can, and that working for somebody else is just a means to an end until that time comes. Rather than rest on their laurels, they develop a skill in their spare time and have it monetized by yesterday. Losers see your ambition and they shit on it because they have a scarcity mindset. 
People in a state of scarcity are excessively selfish and have no capacity to be magnanimous. Losers seek obstacles, why something isn't possible, whilst winners seek solutions. How can I achieve this? Edgy losers are the funniest. They have the energy to call bullshit, but don't direct that energy into elevating themselves. Being angry doesn't make you respectable, powerful, or a winner. If you don't channel your anger correctly, you're just an idiot other people laugh at. Anger is a powerful emotion. Winners channel it into productive endeavors. Losers squander it like they do everything and use it to bicker with irrelevant people on social media. Losers take more because they need more. Wherever a loser is and whatever he's doing, he takes more than he gives, if he even gives at all. The loser is a needy personality. He always wants help, be it emotional or financial. Losers are not self-sufficient and don't even try to be. They are perpetual children. Women are more comfortable being losers than men as they more easily internalize a victim mentality. But it is prevalent to both sexes and is attractive in neither. Winners surround themselves with superiors so they can up their game. Losers surround themselves with inferiors so they can pad their ego. Why do losers become and stay losers? Because once they internalize they're oppressed and that nothing's their fault, it's more comfortable for them to blame reality for their shortcomings instead of humbling up, realizing they aren't squat, and doing something about it. This is another thing about losers. They don't move towards pain and struggle in order to improve themselves. They indulge in comfort. This is why they are weak. It's easier to internalize your inferiority and blame your appointed enemy for your mediocrity than to introspect, improve, and compete. Only people with skill actually like meritocracy because they have a chance of winning. Unremarkable people want handouts. They don't want to compete. Of course, if you had a bad start in life, you will have to deprogram a lot of the nonsense you were taught. But it's better to bloom late than never at all. Number seven, quality beats quantity. Want to bypass the mediocre majority? Most people are quantity-focused, so do the opposite and be quality-focused. This entire blog is built on this mantra, quality over quantity. I get more views, more followers, and more money than people who have been doing this longer than I have because my focus is always on quality, never on quantity. If you copy other people or produce content for the sake of producing it, you will never amount to much. Why will somebody settle for an imitation when they can get the original? You're basically broadcasting you're a bootleg imitator when you do this. People are not blind. You may think you're clever, but it's foolish to underestimate the intelligence of your readers. Why would somebody read your nonsense when there are tens of thousands of publications vying for their attention? If you want people to read you, you have to be worth reading. This means being as original as possible and saying something because you have something to say, rather than saying something because you feel you must to remain relevant and seen. I have never written an essay for the sake of writing it. I write because I have something to say. I genuinely love writing and sharing my ideas. Writing is not a secondary objective to me. It's the primary objective. Ask any regular reader what they think of this blog. 
they will affirm I may not post as much as others, but that generally speaking, my content is superior to everything else they come across, if not equal to it. Whatever I do turns to gold. Otherwise, I don't bother doing it. Whilst other people think they're better than you because they outdo you in volume, you and anybody with an eye for quality knows you're superior because you outdo them in quality. I use writing as an example because it's what I do, but you can apply this to anything. Number eight, applying quality over quantity to sales. The counter-argument I often hear as to why quantity beats quality is more sales is better than less sales as you'll make more money. People who think this are obvious small fish. They must need to make numerous low-ticket sales to masses of mediocre people because they're thinking like lemonade stand owners. The quality over quantity mantra applied to sales is simple. It's better for you to have one big contract or one big client quality than it is to have 10 average or mediocre clients. Having more clients at a lower rate means more stress and work for less money. Even if the cumulative sum is higher for 10 average clients than one good client, get two good clients and you're still doing less work and earning more than you would from 10 average clients. Winners optimize their time. Losers squander it. Losers will tell you that you need to get as many clients as possible and rush them in and out so you can move on to the next one. Winners will tell you that you need to find the right clients and do your very best for them. Quality over quantity does not mean just the one, just the best. It means only work with quality, cultivate quality, and focus on quality. If you want to be the best or be considered the best, you have to obsess over quality. Kim Kardashian, for example, may be very popular with losers, but nobody considers her the best at anything because she is utterly talentless. Aim for superiority in all things. Combine the best product with a network consisting of nothing but the best people. Again, quality over quantity does not mean, I cannot sell the best product to as many people as possible. This is stupid. If you have the best product, Anybody that can afford it will buy it because it'll be popular. For example, with writing, it's better for you to have one good book than five mediocre ones. My book isn't even out yet, and I've been writing for two and a half years. There are third-rate writers who have three books out in 12 months that make less than I do from Patreon on all their books combined. Hilarious, yet somewhat sad. I'm not going out of my way to ridicule anyone here. But I want my point to hit home as profoundly as possible. Quality always trumps quantity. One really good book can make more money than five crappy, uninspiring books. Better to have your readers chomping at the bit for your book to come out than releasing something for an unpacked theater. I am convinced being focused on quantity rather than quality is the path to mediocrity, and that greatness lies in innovation and the pursuit of the apex. I apply this mantra to everything. I desire the best form, not the most reps, and the best friends rather than the most friends. Losers prefer to do a lot of mediocre things and call it success, rather than do one thing really well and become an expert at it. If you ask someone, what are you good at, and they don't have an answer, the answer is nothing. Because someone who doesn't know what they're good at has not obsessed enough in any one area to discover themselves and foster mastery. They are mediocre. Number nine, 
loser's entitlement mentality. Give it to me now. People want to be on top the instant they set their mind to something. But progression is incremental, not exponential. People who consume copiously without counterbalancing via creation tend to be boring. Low-value people take value from others and do not build value. High-value people give value to others and are constantly building it. People who pretend to be busy are low-value, because if they were high-value, they'd actually be busy producing something. If someone is expecting instant, quick, and effortless change, I already know they're a loser. That's not how life works. Marketing targets losers with bullshit promises of easy, instant results because it plays to the fantasy that greatness isn't a matter of skill and dedication, but rather something that is monopolized and can be bought. It cannot, and this is false. The only thing such marketing achieves is the monetization of losers to the profit of a private company. It does not stop losers from losing. If the advice on this blog was disseminated on TV, half of these companies would stop making money, especially sectors like the fitness industry. Why is this? Because only losers buy into false promises and pump money into gimmicky equipment that promises to make your workout easier. These are the same people who pay for gym subscriptions they don't even use. Losers. The fitness industry is entirely dependent on the finance of losers to remain profitable. It's hilarious, yet somewhat sad, to see a section of the economy operate in this manner. Winners get more for less money. Because they have the work ethic, dedication, and subsequent skill that comes from this, not to fall for the bogus promises of flashy, bottom-feeding salesmen. Number 10. Don't take advice from losers and victims. Reality is politically incorrect. Winners embrace this. Losers don't. Sensibility is an expensive prison. Sensitive people tell you one thing straight from the get-go without even intending to. They're losers. Avoid sensitive people. Not only do you have to waste energy watching what you do and don't say, but seeing as they're losers, they have less to offer you. Losers don't have any form of narcissistic supply other than giving advice. Their advice is terrible. Ignore all of it. The people whose advice you really want aren't lining up to give it to you. Those who are lining up are losers 9 out of 10 times. Losers have no achievements to get high off because they haven't achieved anything. So their way of feeling big is misinforming you with nonsense they pulled out of their ass. They achieve this by telling you how to live your life when they're not even on top of their own. Whiners don't want to win. They just want to be pitied. Pity is pathetic. Nobody worth a damn identifies as a loser, even if they come from garbage. The more you try to talk sense to somebody determined to be a victim, the more they dig their heels in about how unfair life is. Pathetic. Anybody who has read this blog has probably deduced I have the capacity to be dangerous if I wanted to be. But instead of endeavoring to destroy people, I don't. I help them instead. I'm about contributing to the world, adding value, and ultimately as a higher goal, rebuilding the masculinity of Western civilization brick by brick. I have a goal higher than myself which means I go further in providing for today's men than the companies who don't care but are just looking to make a buck by exploiting masculine insecurities, height, dick size, earnings, etc. Winners need a goal higher than themselves. You don't become great if you can't see past yourself. You should be selfish, and you should seek to better yourself. 
but once you have momentum, do not limit yourself to greed. Have a higher goal, preferably something noble, and you will excel more than those motivated solely by money. Winners have a positive mentality and wish to create. Losers have a negative mentality and wish to destroy. My life is proof to me you can have absolutely fuck all and nobody there for you and still become a winner. I've had to overcome more than most to get where I am. And this is why I don't have time for whiners. You can whine all you like about patriarchy or white privilege, but this is all fake nonsense. People who whine about this fiction do so because they have no real hardships to complain of. People who've actually had to endure hardship recognize the people who whine about these things for the phonies that they are. I've been a loser. I grew up with nothing and nobody. Nobody gave a shit about me growing up, virtually nobody. I didn't become the man I am today because I had an easy life. I forged myself from a crucible of both spiritual and material deprivation. I've been homeless. I've slept in a park under a tree in the rain because I had nowhere to go. I was in care as a kid, and I've never known my father. By this description, I should be a sniveling loser, a weakling, somebody going nowhere, a crumpled and torn piece of paper tumbling in the winds of an icy English street. And yet, I'm stronger than almost everybody I meet. I'm strong enough to announce this on a website read by hundreds of thousands and not give a crap if anybody tries to use it against me. I don't milk the misfortunes life handed me to monetize people's pity because I'm not a loser. I don't need people's pity to get ahead. I can get ahead on my own merit. And this is what I encourage others to do. I get where I am in life by providing value, not by selling a sob story. Follow this example. Be a winner. Be someone worth something. There is no dignity nor honor in monetizing misfortune. I know how to help the helpless because I've been helpless. Now you know part of my story. You know why I'm emotionally invested in helping men. I had a tough life devoid of guidance. I now offer what I never had to those afflicted by these very maladies. Number 11. In closing. Stand on your own two feet and take life by the balls. Expecting good things to happen because you want them to is how a loser thinks. Winners make it happen. If neither sex nor dignity inspires you to improve, fear of our impending civilizational collapse should do the trick. People can help you for money, and you can read these blogs as much as you like, but people can't fill the void that is a non-existent work ethic. If you think you're a loser, you are. Don't wish for a better life. Make one. The Sanctity of Time This is what you deserve. You could be good today, but instead you choose tomorrow. Marcus Aurelius Number 1. The Philosophy of Time An ambitious man feels like he never quite has enough time, for vision is vast and time brief. A man who lives to achieve must thus do so constantly, for considerable gaps in productivity lead to self-loathing. A man who respects time disrespects himself for wasting it, his very reason for being tied inextricably to his productivity. If an ambitious man is productive, he is happy. If he's not, he isn't. He doesn't achieve because he wants to, but rather because he has to. Such a man has no choice in the matter. 
but rather this is the way his life must be. For if his happiness were not tied to his productivity, his life would not be a life worth living. Only a man without an appreciation for time is content to waste it. For absent ambition, he is ignorant of the path forfeited. If the unambitious man could peek into the life of his productive self, he'd believe the greatness strewn in front of him were a con. Consumed by ignorance and unable to appreciate the relationship between greatness and productivity, the mundane man does not even dream dreams, let alone build them. An actualized man, bereft present or future achievement, is a shadow of his former self. For achievement is addictive, and ambition cruel. A man who's given up is not really a man. He doesn't feel like one, and nobody sees him as one. For expectations of men are great, and the achievements of such men, poor. Many struggle to optimize their time, and few master the endeavor. But he who does not try, or no longer tries, is held in contempt by those who retain a respect for time. To be an actualized man is not merely to have achieved, but to continue to do so. Actualization does not entail retirement, for a man's work is not done until his time's spent. Time is limited, and ambition gluttonous. And so a man must separate the worthy from the unworthy, make firm choices, and live with them regardless of their retrospective efficacy. A man cannot choose to spend time like he can money, for time answers to no man, spending itself until spent. Armed with the knowledge that time is spent regardless of one's will, the wise man endeavors to spend it as wisely as possible. It is from this knowledge that the productivity obsession is born. Born from the realization that although one's quantity of time is fixed, its quality need not be. The ambitious man is all too aware of mortality's brevity, and with a scope of mind that can tap into the infinite, he is compelled to lead life in the knowledge that nothing he does will ever be enough, but that to not even make the attempt is an act of self-betrayal. If a man can optimize his time, but his competition can't, he beats the competition. If he and his competition have equal time, but he can do more with less of it, he beats the competition. We are all allocated an amount of time to do with as we see fit. But not all time is of equal quality. It is the man himself who determines the quality of his time, whilst chance determines its quantity. The quality of time is determined by three core factors, vision, energy, and focus. Absent energy, a man cannot act. Absent vision, he cannot strive. An absent focus, he cannot actualize. Master all three facets, and the quality of one's time vastly improves. Lack even one facet, and one's potential escapes them. Vision alone is inadequate. And this is why many men dream, but do not achieve. Vision bereft energy lacks the impetus to manifest, whilst vision bereft focus lacks the discipline to implement. An underachieving man should pay particular attention to the three facets and take the time to honestly introspect with himself. He should identify which aspect of his character is lacking and form a plan of attack for rectifying the dysfunction. Number two, drama avoidance. The internet contains a volume of knowledge beyond even one's wildest dreams, and yet it is a sea of theatricism full of people violently competing for your attention. 
the average person's self-discipline is inferior to the average narcissist's lust for attention. And so in light of such a reality, one must exercise great care in who they apportion their time. To be used effectively, the internet requires great discipline. The internet is an attention economy. And so histrionic narcissism sells and sells big time. This is fine for average people, but a man who wants to become great has no time for such trivialities. Drama is attention porn and junk information. It physically robs a man of his focus and time, the same way junk food robs it physically. People who create drama do not care about your struggle to be a better man. They are all too happy to take the time you need to build yourself to build their brand. Don't let them. A man's time is valuable not only to him, but likewise to those who would prey on his emotions to monopolize his attention. Fortunes are built on capturing attention, and the easiest way to do this is through drama. Everything costs a man time, but not everything gives him value for his time. If productivity is about enhancing the value of time by doing things that enhance the practitioner, then drama at best gives a man nothing for something, and at worst, ruins his mental state with no payoff. Drama creates hysteria, and hysteria's real value is to serve its master, not the pawns that it consumes and controls. As such, the optimization of one's time all but necessitates the avoidance of drama. Great men create drama as a strategic gambit, but they are not pulled into the webs of others. Number three, create an elitist bubble. It's important for a man to filter the information he consumes, for he becomes what he exposes himself to. If he watches mediocrity, reads mediocrity, and discusses mediocrity, then he's destined to be mediocre. When stated so plainly, it seems obvious, but in practice, it's typically anything but. A man should not only avoid the dramatic, but likewise the low value. Average people are a drain because the average are mediocre. They have no thirst for greatness nor vision, and thus an aspirational man has not even the slightest hope of relating to them. Average people aren't going anywhere in life, so they deify trivia to keep themselves distracted. When a man is not building a life, he is busy commenting on how others run theirs. This is a manifestation of the consumer-producer mentality that distinguishes winners from losers, and these are the type of people you want to avoid. The average are fueled by triviality, but the great do all they can to avoid it. The reason it is so difficult to avoid the trivial is because the average are numerous, and triviality is their prime interest. To become great, you must avoid triviality. And in order to achieve this, you will find yourself becoming more elitist in your associations. As the standards you hold yourself to rise, so do your standards of others. Those who no longer meet the bar must be left behind, lest they drag you back. Number four, love the grind. Unaccomplished men have a tendency to complain about how difficult it is to improve, instead of using the energy spent complaining on improving. The trick to grinding is to enjoy the grind. If a man enjoys doing something productive, it doesn't feel like work and thus he performs better than if he looked at it as work. A man should always go into something with the idea it better completes him to do it, that in doing it he gains, and that gains require effort 
and effort is normal. It should be a man's goal to mentally reach a place where he's so in love with the game, he can't imagine doing anything but playing it. This is in contrast to those who avoid the game because they fear it. A full conversion from escaping into the mediocrity of pop culture and entertainment to reading, lifting, networking, and creating. Emotions dictate a lot of what a man does and doesn't do, regardless of how weak or strong his logic is. A negative perception of a task makes it subjectively difficult, regardless of whether said task is objectively difficult. As such, a man should construct positive perceptions for difficult tasks if he seeks greatness. Number five, in closing. A man can build himself a great life only if he pursues the difficult and relishes the pain of challenge. He should not waste time on regret, as although one should not aspire to squander time, they should forgive themselves for doing so. Punishing oneself for past frivolity is an act of present frivolity. Carpe diem. Man's Burden, the Feminine Conundrum Never be dependent on a woman. Not for her love, nor for self-indulgent emotional catharsis, because women don't love us in the way we love them. They love differently, and thus expecting from her what she expects from you will doom you to failure. Women fundamentally fail at reciprocating love to the extent we've been taught to, or at least tend to typically expect of them. As soon as any of your weaknesses are made abundantly clear, she will begin to feel disenchanted, and this will cause her to start a process of weighing up her options so that when or if the opportunity presents itself to branch swing, trade you in for a more fitting man, she will indeed do so with great haste. If you're a loser and she's not left, it's because she has no better options, or at least believes she doesn't, e.g. low self-worth, so she tolerates you. You're the fill-in. But as soon as she can find a replacement, you're history. Randomly and seemingly sociopathically dead to her. Her abandonment of your relationship will be backward rationalized. If she really felt for you, she will even delude or convince herself to believe in her own faulty, incoherent rationalization, an inaccurate but convenient lie, in order to portray herself most favorably to her own conscience, but most importantly to all of your shared peers as to maintain a healthy reputation which proves conducive to her survival. Women are great at saving face, and even better, believing earnestly in their own bullshit. I won't preach this too much as it's the topic of a future blog post of mine. However, this is why women almost always play the victim card. In the game of social dominance, one does not regard that which they consider as weak to be threatening, which is thus how women can get away with doing the most terrible of things and then shift the punishment for the outcome of said behavior to a man. Most men make the perfect scapegoats because they never see it coming and know not how to defend against such deceptions, their own logic deluding them with notions such as rationality and fairness and an expectation that these alone will save him from such slanderous libel. Whether she behaved badly or her story is untruthful is irrelevant. If she can avoid shame, and ultimately the blame, do read up on the concept of feminine hypoagency, for such behavior by making your peers believe it was you who was at fault rather than her, then she avoids any feelings of guilt, and thus is completely free to behave and strategize in whatever way she may please, no matter how immoral that may be. Women are not bound by honor 
It is a male abstraction. My men, for all their lack of logic and supposed frailty, truly, many of you do wholly underestimate the power of the feminine and the allure of the submissive, and thus fail to understand the inherent control and influence that such pleasant devices have upon your manly senses to the most primitive of levels. Pleasant they may be, but devices they still are. Men love to play this game of convincing themselves that they're in control of their relationship with a woman, when in fact, they are falling slowly into her grip, softly, like an innocuous-looking hand slowly tightening around the neck. This doesn't happen to the plate spinners and players. Oh no. Men engaging in this mating strategy do not become invested enough in a woman for long enough to form a pair bond and let the woman infect their sense of self with her feminine wiles. However, those of you in a long-term relationship, you are fighting a continuous battle. A battle you may never win. A battle you must simply fight in order not to lose. You are maintaining the war and optimately do so, that it balances in your favor. However, victory is prohibited, for winning the battle means losing her love. Love is metaphysically a state of consistent conflict, periods of peace followed by periods of war by the day, hour, or even week. Without conflict, there is no love. Without conflict, there is boredom, passionless after the initial grace period. This is described colloquially as the spark not being there in woman speak. Perhaps this serves as insight into one of the many reasons why women are so capricious as to create unsubstantiable drama, to give attraction a vehicle to manifest via the tension of conflict. The beauty is in the game itself, not the outcome of the game. If you don't enjoy the game, you cannot take the lead in it. She will always put herself before you, ultimately, is the bottom line. You are not special to her. Your strength is. How you make her feel is, but not you. You are a vessel for fulfilling her desires in the many ways in which she cannot. And oh boy, she has many desires. More than those of a man who, by all comparison, seems rather basic in need. Food on the table, pleasing aesthetics, and a blowjob before you fall asleep going a particularly long way. You are not your strength. You utilize your strength. You call upon it. You project it. You wield it. But you are not it. Your feelings, your weaknesses, your concerns, your insecurities, these are all things that you have no luxury to indulge her with. She will indulge you with hers to heal herself emotionally via the process of catharsis, and you shall not be repulsed by it. You will feel it is your duty to fix her emotional issues, as will she. This is an unspoken agreement. However, the reverse is not true. You have no such outlet to utilize her in such a way and still maintain attraction, and thus by extension, a functional and fulfilling relationship. That's why there is no such thing as gender equality. For such displays of weakness will do nothing but to have her view you with contempt and ultimately disdain, even hatred. This is what we mean when we say, women do not love you, but the idea of what or who you is. Read, yourself isn't enough unless yourself is dark triad. They are incapable of loving you in the way in which you imagine it. They love themselves primarily, no matter how insecure and unconfident they are, and of course their children, more than they will ever love you. One is a love of vanity and entitlement. The other is of sacrifice. 
the loyalty and sacrifice men idolize as admirable traits in a woman for a long-term relationship. These are things that, when push comes to shove, will result in your downfall, and have already resulted in the downfall of countless upon countless men. Even if they think they do love you and declare it, it is not in the way in which you love a woman of your affections. She will not sacrifice her well-being for you, not even out of loyalty, something as a committed man you are willing to do. You desire this reciprocation from her, but it is naive to do. Remember, honor is a male abstraction. They may say their love is unconditional, and ironically, perhaps it is in the moment. It's for this reason it's safe to assert that womankind seems somewhat completely deluded, being incredibly unintrospective creatures who lack much clarity of mind and self-awareness, despite their own inability to realize that they take you, man, for granted, and love you, they do so with a cumbersome metric fuck-ton of conditions attached to said love. Is such tightly conditional love really worthy of what the word entails in the most absolute sense to men everywhere? This is a question that will perhaps haunt mankind for eons to come. In comparison to the male idea of love, she espouses the word in vain. Same word, same delivery, different meaning. Till death do us part? Such utterances constantly chanted across churches everywhere are done so in complete ignorance, for they are based on an unfounded and naive foundation, and proclaim extravagances such as eternal love without any measurable iota of validity as such. Women love the idea, the idea of what it is to be a man, hence their constant obsession with the no-true-Scotsman fallacy, a real man does this. A real man has been to Krypton and had Jaeger bombs with Superman at least a dozen times. Basically, power. The measure of a man is more important than the measure of a woman, because essentially, as men, we define the extremities, the limits of the species, the last line of defense, and the forefront of innovation as civilization's builders, protectors, maintainers, and arbitrators. Women are attracted to power. Weakness is not permitted within the powerful. That is the burden to be powerful, the caveat to power. A sense of indentured solace imposed as a side effect of one's burden, the weight of the power one wields. Embody this idea of superiority and maintain it within your character for a lifetime, and that's the closest you will get to being loved, via admiration, the most profound form of respect, in the way that you desire. The way that a man most earnestly loves a woman, or comparatively, how a woman loves her baby. Men love conditionally too, but men don't compile laundry lists for what makes the ideal woman. Women, however, write books on what makes a man and how a man should behave. That ugly washed-up thing on OkCupid, deluded on her own entitlement, will have a personal shopping list of requirements that a man must fulfill. Her bargaining power is irrelevant. She is crazy enough and deluded enough to desire it and demand it if you are weak enough, you shall yield it, whether she is objectively worthy of such or not. She is worth exactly what she can get for herself. Such is the nature of female hypergamy. Machiavellianism trumps actual merit, although arguably is a form of merit in and of itself. The longer the list of requirements the woman in question has, the more maintenance which needs to be done in order to maintain a state of love with her. 
Heck, mainstream society calls many women high maintenance for a reason. They just don't go past the materialistic elements when analyzing this concept. Digression. This is why Western men love third world bitches. Less expectation, higher appreciation. This is a part of how men and women love differently. Women are extractors. Their imperative is to extract from you time, money, DNA, emotions, logic, sacrifice, and ultimately, they will utilize you for their own gains, be it through incentivizing methods, sex, submissiveness, kindness, flirtation, or fear. Won't see the kids again. We'll make a fraudulent rape claim. We'll take half your assets and divorce. We'll cause you to form dependency on her and then abandon you, etc. Those who think relationships are not war are simply naive. I understand why my words will not be popular with the majority. But then I don't assert that which I do with the desire to appeal to populism, but merely truth in all its forms. That's where the red pill gets its power from. Setting you free from your delusions by bitch-slapping you with a dosage of truth. Once you get over the initial pain of realization, you become a stronger and more productive man. No pain, no gain, right? Yes, these stupid little idiomatic proverbs do have a lot more wisdom in them than the average listener gleans from such emphatic wordplay. Ultimately, some kick and scream more than others, but you don't become a winner in life by elegantly floating to the top on Aladdin's carpet, even if that's the image you're conveying. They, women, are fucking tyrants for a man to deal with, due to a relentlessly capricious absence of logic. The less intelligent among womankind don't even realize how destructive their instability and brash utilitarianism of men is to all but the strongest of men, for they run primarily on instinct. An absence of reason, or arguably preference for reason, leads to nothing but instinct to take hold, often described colloquially as how I feel. This is something men have realized for thousands of years. Go and read some ancient or even medieval philosophy and look for the proverbs, quotations, and papers on the nature of women. It's something as old as time itself. Aristotle, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Arthur Schopenhauer should get you started. You want to take the pill? Are you sure you can handle it? A lot of men today are completely fucking clueless. There are many levels to the rabbit hole, and it gets deeper and deeper as you progress. Each time you descend into the pits of reality, you're reminded of all your prior learning, eviscerating all the delicate sensibilities you've acquired in your pursuits of utopic idolization along the way. Those of you still near the beginning of your understanding, measuring success by bedpost notches rather than the ability to successfully pair bond, dominate, and lead a relationship, oh yay, I got 13 numbers and had two lays the past month, don't even realize the half of it. Pyrrhic victory may taste like victory, but it's not victory. If this is your permanent mating strategy, as in, you will not pass on your lineage, then this is fine. But if you ever want a family, it's not enough. You need to learn long-term relationship game to raise children. Men are humanity's true romantics, and thus, this is why man must guard his heart like a bank vault, treat his commitment like African blood diamonds. To squander it frivolously is to perform a most terrible disservice upon oneself. If she breaches the vault, if one finds themselves in love with a woman, then don't let her leave by any means necessary. If she finds a way into your heart, hold her personally accountable for enacting herself upon you as such, and draw as much power as you can muster to take charge. At no cost must you allow yourself to lose. 
The bottom line in all elements of life is victory or failure. Relationships are no exception, despite the hijacking of your mind's clarity, which oxytocin induces upon your psyche. Ultimately, do not allow your sense of injustice to turn into hatred for women. For their inability to reciprocate sacrificial love for a man is a limitation imposed by nature, not a choice. Some rare women may even try to oppose their nature at great distress to themselves, although that too is futile. To hate is to self-induce torture and misery. Things that, as someone who competes for power, are devices that you cannot allow to possess you as they will divorce you from your ambitions. Realize the limitations of womankind, accept them, and come to terms with the fact that a man is always truly alone. There is nobody higher up for you to depend upon. You're the end of the line in the absence of a belief in God. This is why we are so sentimental with our memories, and the older and more experienced the bastard, the more sentimental he will be, harboring what is essentially a chamber of moments where he didn't feel quite so alone, which a part of his fiber, no matter how stoic and disciplined his consciousness may be, will involuntarily and vicariously draw from for comfort in the darkest of times. These memories enter through the retina and ear canal, spend some short time in the brain, and then continue to weigh on the heart slowly in varying measurements of weight until one's dying breath. Wounds heal, but scars are indeed forever. Every man has a burden he must carry. None of you are exempt. Not even the psychopathic, as even the psychopath has their own feelings to contend with, regardless of whether they care for yours. In brief moments you have companionship, those who make the best companions are those with a sense of loyalty, credibility, and honor. Other men. Brotherhood. The Suffering of the Lost Boys When a father gives to his son, both laugh. When a son gives to his father, both cry. William Shakespeare Number 1. Introduction It is unbecoming of a man to identify as a victim. Thus, I never encourage men to see themselves in this way. However, a boy raised by a single mother or family with a submissive father has been deprived his birthright. These are the lost boys, the unwitting victims of poor parenting. I label them victims only in the sense they have done a great disservice. That is not to say this cannot be overcome, but that merely a most deleterious handicap has been conferred on them. A boy raised by a beta is not taught social dominance, or how to protect himself physically or mentally. He's not shown how to attract women, and chances are he will lack basic yet necessary life skills such as self-discipline. Like the boy of the single mother, he is forced to employ the internet as a surrogate for the father he never had. The need for young men, as well as lost boys who have grown into adult men to be good at being a man, is dire. To any man, masculinity is important, but due to paternal deprivation, this need is even greater among lost boys. It is as such that in a time where there is little in the way of support for boys and men, the manosphere has manifest. Boys need a strong paternal figure in their life, someone to teach them of and guide them in the ways of men. More importantly, they need someone to shield them from the estrogenic tirades of a struggling mother. 
A young boy is not fit to adequately handle nor sufficiently cope with an adult woman's emotions. Yet in the absence of a strong father, this burden as man of the house is imposed on a young boy to his developmental detriment. A woman's emotions don't care if her boy is only seven years old. If she's got to emote, she's going to. So what happens when, through no fault of his own, said seven-year-old grows into a young 20-year-old who never had the strong paternal figure he needed to become the best version of himself? When due to such poor upbringing, he is clueless in the ways of men, inadequate with women, undisciplined, depression-prone, and mentally unbalanced. He goes onto his computer. He tells his problems to his therapist, Google, and if the I'm feeling lucky button works right, he ends up here. Number two, father hunger. The lost boy is damaged, driven to spiritual dysfunction by excess exposure to estrogen. For a lost boy, estrogenic influences are abundant to the point of toxicity, with testosteronic influence but a scant repository, oasis-like in its scarcity. Whether a boy came from a single mother or a weak father, the root and core of his problems as a man are one and the same. In his formative years, he lacked a dominant, albeit benevolent, masculine role model to guide him. A boy needs a patriarch to teach him the ways of men, and so a woman will not do, for the condition of her existence knows not the male experience. A woman interacts with men as a woman. A man's behavior in relation to her is thereby measured in its response to the presence of femininity. How men behave with her is not how they behave with one another. A woman only sees what a man portrays. She does not understand the why or the how, thus she is ignorant to a man's inner workings. Women only ever see the end product, not what it took to create. As such, a woman may, in her hubris, think she understands men, but what she can never know is how to be a man among men. Because she knows not this, nor what it is like to be a man and deal with a woman, her guidance in raising a boy is merely necessary not sufficient. Boys intuit this, and men know this. But because single mothers have been catapulted atop a cultural hero pedestal, nobody dares address the elephant in the room. Likewise, a low-tier man will not do, for he is an inferior version of man. And therefore, like a high school physics student holding a symposium on molecular quantum mechanics, ill-equipped to teach much of anything. Some of the boys birthed by single mothers are rescued, an alpha grandfather or uncle raises them as their own. But this is spiritual surgery to what is otherwise an avoidable problem. The bond between father and son is sacrosanct, for boys take mental nourishment on how to be from their fathers, not their mothers. What single mothers provide their boys is a female model for how to be, and naturally this leads to feminine and broken men, not stable, competent, and masculine men. In spite of what a woman's narcissism may screech, his father was a jerk. My boy is better off without him. The reality is that boys want fathers, and fathers want sons. It is the gynocentric cultural and legal framework which emancipates them. It is the rights of women to the detriment of men which emancipates them. It is a mother's legal entitlement to her children, where a father has no reciprocal entitlement which emancipates them. Number three pain of the lost boy. The lost boys have no voice, and they dare not speak, for they do not expect anyone to care for their tale of struggle. Speaking, for the little that it's worth anyway, would thus be quite pointless. 
You are a boy. Boys must be strong, is what the bigots parrot in retort to a male's exclamation of struggle. The concept of sympathy and an extension of aid to boys and men suffering adversity is all but absent. Their hardships are often met by sociopathic nonchalance at best and contemptuous disgust at worst. The lost boys understand indifference quite intimately, whilst comprehending little in matters of love, for they have never really been loved properly. At least not in a way that does not serve to only weaken them further, be that the maternal love of a coddling mother or the heartbreak of puppy love. Whether it's clear to them or not, what they need is the strong, unwavering hand of paternal love. Paternal love is the love that keeps on giving. It is the richest love. And yet the spiritual medicine the lost boy needs is the very thing he can never hope to have. It's the delinquency caused by an absence of such love which cements a type of loneliness into the boy it afflicts. Something is fundamentally missing. These boys are broken. They can't seem to make their lives work. They struggle to find themselves. They know they have a problem, but they don't know what to do about it, and nobody seems to give a fuck. This is the plight of the lost boy. Number four, the lost boy, a feminist bastard. The ever-increasing isolation of today's young men is a social affliction endemic in developed countries. The isolation, feminization, neglect, and underachievement of such men is a pronounced trend. A trend which can only come to prominence since feminism murderously toppled the nuclear family, leaving nothing but broken homes in its wake. When the nuclear family was the norm, and women were neither quite so naive nor financially incentivized to raise a child alone, the likelihood a boy had a fruitful bond with his father was greater. Simply put, bastards were uncommon, as was divorce. As a direct consequence of feminism, boys and men alike are all the worse for it. Before feminism came to dictate the social narrative, having children out of wedlock was considered neither acceptable nor desirable. Now it is commonplace. Nobody talks about how boys are failing, nobody at all. However, despite the sordid indifference and neglect of society's inclination to address such a fundamental social ill, it's not as fringe and uncommon as perhaps some of society's more privileged would like to imagine. Imagine being the operative word here. Why is society so apathetic to the plight of the lost boys? Well, to aid these boys would be to politically undermine the hegemony of feminist thought, and thus it is not part of either the political or cultural imperative to address this modern plague. Instead, we sweep it under the rug and pretend it isn't there. Chances for a lost boy to socialize outside of the home will have been at school and in the workplace. Typically, such institutions yielded little to no social reward for them. That is to say, because the lost boys were not high-value individuals taught proper social skills, nobody ever really wanted to know them. Who cares about poor guys who aren't good-looking, naturally charming, wealthy, or connected? Nobody. And yet, this aptly describes the majority of men born into poverty, with nobody to provide them what they need to reach their potential. If even a fraction of today's boys and men were lucky enough to find the red pill, they would be immediately awash with regret, yet simultaneously relieved. Finally, they're awake. With their path to recovery and masculine self-development laid bare, where once there was only pain and nihilism, there is now a glimmer of hope. 
The red pill is not a cure in so much as it is an effective treatment. Nothing can replace the hole left by an absent or inadequate father. But the advice and guidance of a good father can be replaced. That's what the red pill does. Number five, how the lost boy copes. How does a lost boy attempt to break away from the shackles of his personal hell? Most do not find the red pill community. Some become bold with a, I've got nothing to lose, motherfucker, kind of mindset, dialing up their dark triad characteristics. They may sell drugs or get involved in gangs. They do anything that gives them money, respect, status, and sex, casting all sense of conventional morality out the window. People who have nothing break the law to get something, not necessarily because they enjoy breaking the law. Frustration breeds criminality as much as poverty, so when both are present, you have a real recipe for disaster. What about the lost boys who are too timid to take the dark triad route? What about lost boys from a slightly better economic background? They end up incubating their sadness with technology, namely porn and video games. This anesthetizes them. It allows them to forget their lowly drab existence and provides a false sense of achievement. In reality, they're not going anywhere, but at least in this cocoon, they're not falling anywhere either. It is not, of course, without its drawbacks. A lack of everyday social interaction creates an irrational fear of socializing. If you don't spend a lot of time around people, you foster an irrational fear of them. Lost boys have become so socialized by emotional neglect that voluntary solitude has become their modus operandi. Quite the dichotomy it is to fear loneliness while simultaneously fearing social interaction. This, but a mere glimpse of the personal hell a lost boy endures. Escapism is a form of self-preservation for people who don't know how to or simply aren't brave enough to engage in self-improvement. When you have nothing, when you have nobody, stepping into the gym and lifting some weights around a bunch of strangers is a big deal. It takes courage for a lost boy to do what is otherwise seen as a mundane activity for regular people. A lost boy's anxiety can become quite debilitating. It will actively stop him from pursuing self-improvement because beholden to fear, he is paralyzed. The cycle must be broken for progress to take hold. But lost boys are off slaves to fear because rejection and failure is all they've ever known. Number six. How a Lost Boy Quits The standards for masculinity are high, whilst the infrastructure to cultivate it is all but non-existent for many. No wonder, then, so many incubate themselves from a dreary existence with porn, games, and internet. When you feel like society doesn't want you, why would you want to participate in it? If you're isolated and the struggle is getting you down, one may as well make the confines of their psychological prison as comfortable as possible. It's not that I advocate this lifestyle in any way, quite the contrary, but simply that I understand why it is as common as it is. To be such an, it's psychic anesthesia. Relative to loneliness is pre-selection. A lack of pre-selection can form the basis for a lost boy's social ostracization. Most people are closed-minded and judgmental. They won't even try to look beyond superficialities to see if there's anything likable about you. So if you're not a high flyer, a great deal of people are not even interested in sharing oxygen with you. Everyone wants to be with a winner. If that's not you, 
and you're a collective heap of problems stemming from the promiscuity of your mother's ovary, then fuck you, because nobody gives a shit about you. Number seven, advice for a lost boy. Take up as many hobbies as you can afford to. Fill your timetable with them. Fixate on becoming better. You're not going to settle for mediocrity and idle escapism anymore. Your commitment to yourself is to invest what your parents never did. You want better, so you're going to strive for it. One of the first things you should do is join a gym. Exercise is great for staving off depression and increasing personal confidence. I know if you're feeling particularly low that this may seem quite scary, but it is necessary. Exercise is one of the basic building blocks necessary to fuel all other forms of self-enhancement, as is reading. More important is developing skills from extracurricular activities. Debating clubs, dance, martial arts, languages, instruments, the list is endless. That which allows you to socialize whilst gaining a skill is something inherently worth pursuing. Working on skills builds your value. Building your value should be a huge part of what your life will become. If you don't know what you like, experiment until you know. Take one step at a time. Do not fret over the slowness of your self-improvement. Frustration will only serve to undo your progress, inspiring unwelcome regression. For someone in a position such as yours, it's a wonder you're even improving at all. It's a wonder you survived long enough to find this blog and even seriously think about your situation. It doesn't matter how slowly you build, only that you do. Rome wasn't built in a day. You won't be either. For more information pertaining to making this kind of lifestyle change, read my essay on monk mode. Number eight, in closing. The ideological weaponization of wombs by feminism has disrupted the patriarchal line. The systematic segregation of father from son brought about by changes to the legal and welfare systems have deprived two successive generations of men their masculinity, and will continue to do so for as long as this ideology is granted any judicial or academic legitimacy. As such, we now have the perverse circumstance in which a man is present to raise his boy yet would himself be considered unfit in the ways of men by his contemporaries. Likewise, we have women raising boys, equally ignorant to the ways of men, yet heralded as champions of bravery for what is often no more than promiscuity apps and contraception. This promiscuity and taxpayer dependency is then retroactively repackaged as independence, and young boys grow up not only fatherless, but penniless. However, the most perverse injustice is where men uneducated in the ways of men are charged with raising boys. These men replicate their masculine illiteracy by imparting their psychic castration onto an impressionable and unsuspecting son. This is perhaps one of the greatest tragedies of all. Not only did this man miss out on a fulfilling manhood, but without malice of intent, through his own hand, his boy will too. Part 2. The Nature of Women Tuition from Tragedy Ben's Story When one is in love, one always begins by deceiving oneself, and one always ends by deceiving others. This is what the world calls a romance. Oscar Wilde Number 1. 
Introduction If anybody needed the red pill, it was Ben. The tale of Ben is a cautionary tale. For men like Ben are the reason the red pill exists. Ben is, much to his detriment, a man completely clueless in matters of women. Ben's tale highlights how a woman's slow, pervasive intrusion into a man's emotional inner sanctum can prove deadly, especially so for men absent red pill awareness. Ben's ignorance to reality cost him an otherwise effortless and affable charm, his sense of well-being, money, time, and the prospect of a good future. But let us not allow Ben's suffering to be in vain. Using Ben's experiences, we can look at the relational dynamics between a blue pill man and his girlfriend, explicating how red pill principles play their part in and ultimately define the success or failure of a relationship. With Ben's story in hand, my humble analysis, and your sharing of this article, maybe, just maybe, will save a few more men from becoming Ben. Okay, enough of my talking. You haven't even heard the story yet, so on we go. Number two, Ben's story. I have a friend, we'll call him Ben, who was a stay-at-home dad. We knew each other since high school. In high school, Ben was independent and fairly assertive. Yet likewise, he was one of the kindest people you'd know. Ben was very upstanding. Everybody liked him. He wasn't your stereotypical alpha, but he was the leader of his friends. In high school, Ben met a girl called Julia. They dated and were really into one another. Ben found it easy to get girls because of his easygoing personality. Julia was attracted to Ben's popularity, so she asked Ben to be her boyfriend. Looking back, I think that's where things started to go wrong. It was his first girlfriend, and he really, really loved her. He and I stopped going out together, and on the rare occasions we did go out, he would be worried his girlfriend was missing him, so he'd incessantly text and call her. I loved Ben to the core at the time, but it became unbearable to stay near him anymore. As a result, we ended up growing distant from one another. IM's Analysis Our tale starts with that of an extroverted young alpha male in a classic boy-meets-girl scenario. A tale so recognizable, it's a cliched trope repeated in countless movies. Boy is popular, girl falls in love with boy's popularity. So boy dates girl and quickly falls in love with her only for girl to end up thinking he's a loser when school's over and the popularity that made him situationally attractive has evaporated. Also note Ben's constant need to check in with his woman. This is a classic beta male trait. Anti-dread. Dread is the heightening and elicitation of attraction in a woman via a combination of emotional withdrawal and an implicit or explicit demonstration of social power. For example, being seen with another high-status person, particularly an attractive woman, while simultaneously dialing down the degree and frequency of emotional validation a man gives his woman constitutes dread. Both alpha and dark triad men use dread as a tool to keep their woman's narcissism in check. Dread plays on a woman's jealous disposition and group status anxiety to keep her ego in check and attraction high. Dread communicates to a woman's hypergamy, this man is hot. 
Likewise, whether a woman is aware or unaware of the dynamic at hand has no bearing on the efficacy of this social mechanism, for it is immutable. Naturally, anti-dread is the opposite of dread. Anti-dread is the constant validation of a woman's concerns, be they pettily baseless or accurately rooted in reality. Anti-dread is the constant assuagement of a woman's ever-changing insecurity, addressing every little concern she has with servile-like efficiency. It is the constant need to make sure everything is okay, and is in general a passive, pandering, supplicate behavior which prioritizes comfort and paranoia placation over attraction. Where dread harnesses a woman's paranoia and discomfort to create attraction, anti-dread looks only to assuage it, making the man in question appear boring, and thus, in turn, unchallenging and unattractive. Women are not attracted to men who give them an easy life, they're attracted to the jealousy of uncertainty and competition. Assuaging a woman once she teeters on the precipice of romantic uncertainty almost ensures a strong, passionate relationship. Effectively, for a woman to appreciate a man, she has to believe she can lose him. Anti-dread ensures high levels of comfort, which in turn cultivate a hubris so firm she believes her man to be incapable of leaving her. When a woman does not believe she needs to please a man in order to keep him, she cannot respect him, and thus, in turn, cannot love him in the way a romantic partner should. The story continues. Fast forward a couple of years, and Ben got Julia pregnant. She had the baby just after graduation, but her family didn't accept it, so they kicked her out of the house. Ben found a poorly paid job at a logistics firm, gave up on his dreams of college, left his family, and went to live with her in the worst house you can imagine. IM's analysis. Already this early into the story, we can see the painstaking decisions that will eventually lead to the demise of Ben. What is Ben's crucial, life-altering faux pas? He gave up his future for a girl. A man always needs a mission other than his woman. To put this mission first, and to entertain women solely as an accompaniment, never a goal. A good woman is one who will not jeopardize the mission. An exemplary woman is one who will support it. A woman who expects to be treated with more importance than her man's mission unwittingly condemns them both to a most sordid misery. For a woman's conceit will destroy the relationship should it not be kept in check. When a man has no mission other than to meet the needs of his woman, Rest assured, the woman in question will seek a man with a mission of his own. You see, women are so clueless and out of touch with what's really good for them that left to lead, they will ruin every relationship with every man they ever have. The success of a relationship thus relies almost solely on how a man harnesses his ingenuity to safeguard the relational arrangement from the vacillation of his woman's emotional impulses. If you allow a woman to dictate the course of your life, she will. And no matter her demands beforehand, she'll hate you for it. A woman is a creature who pesters, nags, undermines, demands, and sabotages her man in a petty quest for power born of insecurity. And should you yield to her attempts at usurpation, she'll hate you. This is nothing but a test to see if you're a real man. 
a behavior almost all women compulsively exhibit without self-awareness or malice, yet nevertheless agitating and troublesome for man. A woman hates a man who won't give her what she wants, but she absolutely detests a man who does, and without a fight. You see, the typical woman spends all her time ensuring a man sees her as the most important thing in his life. And as soon as he behaves as if she is, she becomes suffocated, moving on unflinchingly. Women think they want to be worshipped, but they do not. They want to be dominated, absent the insecurity of disrespect. Few women are self-aware enough to realize this. Even fewer dare to admit it. The story continues. Ben worked eight hours per day, whilst Julia went to college. College here is free, so she only had to study to enter. Ben paid the neighbor to look after their child whilst he worked and she studied. As Julia had no income, she was reliant on Ben as he paid both the rent and her college expenses. When Ben was home, Julia would be studying, so he'd take more care of the child than she would. Ben's family would assist them with money and childcare when Ben's money ran out at the end of each month. I didn't know what was happening because we'd lost contact at the time. Otherwise, I would have helped him as much as possible. This insane routine went on for about three years, until Julia got a proper job at the end of college. She got an internship in a prestigious consulting firm, and as she used to say, got hired straight after college because she was too good. Once she got this job, she was making three times what Ben made working the same number of hours. Ben always hated leaving his child to be taken care of by a stranger, so he spoke with Julia and they agreed it would be better if he stayed home and looked after their daughter while she worked. This worked to begin with, and Ben was happy. He contacted me and a few others at this time and began keeping in touch. He had changed a lot physically. It was shocking. He was pale, tired-looking, and appeared ten years older than he was. I assumed this was because of the shitty job he'd worked over the years, but nevertheless, he was still noble one of the greatest people I've ever known. I am's analysis. Without Ben, Julia would be a single mother. As a single mother, she would have very little opportunity to educate herself. Ben covering the bills while she studied was the fulcrum on which her study depended. Thus it stands to reason that, were it not for Ben, Julia would not have had the opportunity to economically elevate herself. And so it appears by this point, Ben slipped from the position of schoolboy alpha to that of beta provider, a transition so insidious, I doubt he entirely realized it himself. The moment Julia got her job at the consultancy and was no longer reliant on Ben's income was the moment Ben became obsolescent. At this point, he was neither the alpha that provided excitement nor the beta providing resources and security. He was redundant. Perversely, Ben gave up his academic aspirations because he was becoming a father, yet his girlfriend, who was actually conceiving the child, did not. To ensure a fruitful and more lasting relationship, it would have made much more sense for Ben to have gone to college whilst his girlfriend stayed home and looked after the child. I will give you my reasoning in four words. Brifault's Law and Hypergamy a man who arches his back to enable a woman to step onto it and climb higher creates a woman who will look down on him once her ascension has been realized. 
the naive, romantic man expecting to have his loyalty honored will extend his hand from below, clasping at the heel of her shoe in expectations she will reward his efforts. But she will not. She will kick him down and scoff with nothing but disgust for what she views as inferior neediness. In a miraculous state of compartmentalization, she will forget everything the man did to assist her ascension, attributing all credit for her accomplishments to herself, whilst allocating blame for her imperfections to her man. Just as a woman will only take responsibility for your victories and not your losses, she will likewise refuse to design a man she sees as inferior with credit for her victories. This is precisely why an out-of-control female ego is so deleterious to a relationship. An egotistical woman believes she is above her man, and it is via this belief that her attraction wanes and ushers in an era of relational failure. As we can see above, Ben's lack of dominance allowed Julia's hubris to become so strong that she began to believe in her innate superiority to Ben, illogically and deludedly believing she had gotten to where she was single-handedly, rather than on the back of Ben's selfless sacrifice. Why does a woman suddenly betray the father of her child, the very man who worked tirelessly to give her a better life? Hypergamy. And more specifically, Brifolt's law. Ben's value was as a provider. The minute he enabled Julia to provide for herself more efficiently, he removed her dependency and thus became obsolete. Had Ben been the one to go to college whilst Julia worked a job and stayed home with the child, Ben and Julia would still be together. Why? Because Ben would have the status and income of a better job that Julia would not have for herself. This, in turn, would allow Ben to satiate Julia's hypergamy. By facilitating Julia's social mobility at the expense of his own, Ben not only deprived himself economic opportunities, but has all but certainly ensured his love interest will lose interest in him. The story continues. Fast forward two years, and Ben's girlfriend, Julia, admitted to having an affair with her co-worker. I am's interjection. Who didn't see that one coming? She told Ben she didn't want to be with him anymore because she couldn't live with herself for betraying him. After this, they separated. Ben went back to his family's house, he searched for a job, and after a few months, he found one. He asked to live with me for a while because I lived closer to where he worked. Naturally, I obliged, and we lived together for a few months. I am's analysis. The old, it's not you, it's me, rejection. As objective in tone as I endeavor to be in the penning of this literature, I find it all but impossible not to laugh at how insanely ludicrous this gambit was. Here, Julia tries to save face, maintain her reputation as a wholesome woman and mother, by feigning she is so wrought with guilt for her disloyalty that she should leave as she is unworthy of Ben. Of course, being the wrongful party, it's not down to her to decide what the consequences for her actions should be. Such a decision would rightfully belong to the injured party, Ben. However, just as naturally as she took control of the relationship, she took control of the breakup. If Ben had been on top of things, the consequences and punishment for her behavior would not be in her hands, but in his. Of course Julia didn't respect Ben, which is the cause of her waning attraction, and thus decision to cheat to begin with. 
This disrespect continues as she smears herself in a veneer of inauthentic righteousness, claiming her exit to be the self-imposed punishment she deserves rather than what it really is. Convenient abandonment. A branch swing. Here we see a woman's Machiavellianism at its finest, as she superficially condemns herself, only to suffer no real punishment as she simultaneously executes her whim's desires. From one Machiavellian to another, I must say, disguising an exit strategy as an unwanted but necessary exile is something of a stroke of genius. This is definitely something that would headfuck a lesser man. And I can say with almost unshakable veracity, it would have been something that wrought monumental chaos on Ben's young and fragile mind. The story continues. Meanwhile, Julia moved to her co-worker's house and took their daughter with her. Ben can't have guardianship of the girl because his job was unstable and he did not have a home. Julia made it difficult for him to see his daughter because seeing him reminded her of her betrayal. He lawyered up and was permitted to see his daughter just once every 15 days. Ben's situation while living with me was as bad as you can imagine. He had no degree, a low-paying and unstable job, little contact with his daughter, no future prospects, no wife, and none of his classic charisma. He barely talked when he lived with me. I was paying for his lawyer because he wanted nothing more than to see his daughter. I offered him a psychologist, but he refused. I requested he went to college and offered to pay, but he refused me. I'm sure he was depressed. He moved out after a while and got his own shitty place, as this would increase his chances of getting custody of his daughter. Julia went insane when he did this. She tried to stop him from having contact with his daughter altogether. She poisoned his daughter and turned her against him. She filed false allegations to the police, claiming Ben had threatened her invaded her home, and tried to beat her. She made at least 30 of these complaints to the police. As a result, police inquiries began, and Ben had to get a better lawyer to defend himself from her accusations. He had to sell his house, and once again went back to live with his family. He didn't want to come and live with me again because I think his pride had been hurt, and he was embarrassed. After one of Julia's false allegations, the police made Ben wear an electronic tag around his ankle. When his boss saw his ankle tag, he lost his job, and his life was destroyed in every way conceivable. I've said it before, but it bears saying again. When a woman leaves, she takes everything that matters to her, possessions and children alike. Ben's attempt to dispute what Julia rightfully believed to be hers, their daughter, resulted in her upping the ante. To defend her property, she went on the offensive, and as predictable as finding sand in a desert, leveraged the authorities to successfully criminalize her opponent in the absence of any sufficient evidence of wrongdoing. The weaponization of the state against Ben served two primary functions. The first being to ensure his continued prohibition of access to his daughter. The second being an economic attack upon his resources to tie him up in so much legal trouble that whatever money he did have would dry up. Julia held all the trump cards. She had a much greater income, which if you remember is the very income Ben was crucial in her acquisition of, her partner's income, and the default assumed innocence and benefit of the doubt that comes with being female. 
This continued legal pressure complemented the mental poisoning she had conducted upon their daughter and would ensure Ben was firmly out of the picture once and for all. The electronic tag was the final nail in the coffin, having the unintended yet tactically pleasant effect of causing Ben to lose his job, thus financially starving him and removing his ability to fight for custody of his child. At this point, Julia won. Being penniless and thus powerless to fight back, Julia would automatically retain custody. I do not believe these were the actions of a dark triad woman, but rather that of a representatively average woman in a state of scorn. If a man loves a woman too much, fails to maintain social dominance, and underestimates her purely on the superficial pleasantry of her femininity, like Ben, he can be assured swift acquaintance with a world of most heinous pain. Number three, Ben's fate. Last week, Ben tried to kill himself by drinking cleaning products and pills in a hotel. The lady who cleaned his room found him and he was taken to the hospital. He had his stomach pumped. He may survive, but his interior was badly damaged. He's still in the hospital. Number four, in closing, lessons learned. You should not rely on a woman's moral compass. <laughs> or emotions, to override her hypergamous programming. If Ben is an example of anything, he's an example of man's total disposability should he allow himself to become obsolescent emotionally or financially. As such, a man must fight obsolescence by maintaining relevance. If you allow a woman's motherly nature and good looks to conceal the great mental cruelty she is capable of, you will be in for a most revolting awakening the eve she opts to betray you. You may be unable to trust a woman, but you can trust her hypergamy. Act accordingly. If you treat a woman too well, she will reward you with enough pain and betrayal to make suicide seem like a viable option. Do not love too much. It is a man's responsibility to ensure he maintains dominance in the relationship. He should employ dread to humble his woman and prevent an unchecked ego from encroaching on the stability of the relationship. Women are practical lovers by nature, whereas men are idealistic. As a man, your love should thus be better guarded, more scantily awarded, and more quickly revoked. If a man loves too much and too wholly, he may find himself in a situation as dire as Ben's. Never elevate a woman beyond your station. Should you help a woman to improve herself, ensure it is not to the extent she surpasses you. Ben supported Julia with money for childcare, food, and lodging while she studied. Without Ben, Julia would not be a professional earning three times what Ben does. As the late and great Patrice O'Neill would fondly assert, a king can make a woman queen, but a queen cannot make a king. Even as esteemed as the position of queen is, it's still beneath that of king. And this dynamic plays out universally in male-female relationships. Being a weak and passive man is dangerous. It could cost you everything you hold dear, including your sanity. Next time you feel even a tinge of guilt for being a jerk to a woman, remember Ben. Remember how devoid of sympathy hypergamy is when a man is beneath rather than above it. 
If you are going to remember anything, remember this. Don't be like Ben. Be anything but Ben. Ben is the ultimate example of what not to be. Ask yourself, what would Ben do? Then do the opposite. Dedicating your life to making a woman happy is a recipe for disaster. Women may say in their hubris that this is a commendable and advisable thing to do, but this line of thought is folly based on nothing but feminine conceit. As such, I will forever recommend this. Have a mission. Do not base your life on a woman. Why does an ideal woman have to have as few sexual partners as possible? Women don't need to work to get sex. Sure, certain men may present a challenge because they're out of her league, but if she works within her level and goes out tonight and tells a guy that she wants him, then 9 out of 10 guys will go off with her there and then and fuck her. It takes no skill for a woman to get sex, and therefore does not merit any respect or admiration. Women are the gatekeepers to sex. Men are, quite crudely, generally up for it most of the time, specific men aside. This means her conquests are not conquests, but merely offerings. If she's offering herself up to half the town, to a guy, that doesn't warrant respect, but disgust. It essentially says, I'm low value because I offer the best part of myself for very little. High-value women should only be giving it up to a boyfriend. The signifiers of high-value women are that they have had few relationships lasting long periods of time and minimal hookups. If she's constantly in and out of relationships, or constantly hitting the clubs and bars and going home with different men, she's probably emotionally unstable and not worth touching with a barge pole. There's irony here, because if the girl is low-value, Guys want her to give it up on the first night, because to them, she has no value other than a fuck. However, if they're considering her for a relationship, they want her to be one of the girls who doesn't do that. The difference in preference is based on the approach. If you just want to fuck a girl, you don't really care if she's a slut. In fact, being a slut makes it easier to have sex with her. If you want to build a family with a woman, you don't want her to be a slut because it means you're investing all this love, time, energy, and investment into her, and she may squander that by betraying you to fuck another guy. Whores don't make good wives. They make good lays. The problem is every whore hates the fact that she is a whore, deludes herself that she isn't a whore to maintain her self-esteem, tries to hide her past because in her heart of hearts, she actually knows she is a whore, and then attempts to play the wife. What happens is because she's not been monogamous much of her life and had all these great sexual experiences and adventures when she was in her 20s, she misses the excitement of that and throws the marriage away in selfishness. This can be because she's bored or because she can't resist the temptation of another man that's on her radar. Men are the de facto gatekeepers to commitment. They choose whether they want to stick around after fucking you. Your power is in your pussy. To begin with, your ability to keep a man lays in your personality traits. His power lays in whether he's going to invest in you after he's fucked you. If you don't seem like a good deal, if he doesn't enjoy your company, or if he finds you to be shallow and annoying, then why should he keep investing in you? 
because otherwise he's an asshole, or because of your delicate sensibilities. Red pill philosophy teaches men to put themselves before women, much to the dismay of mainstream society. If it's not a good deal to him, then you're not worth the commitment. If you want long-term commitment, you've got to work for it. It doesn't just drop out of the sky. Nobody's entitled to anything just because. But the concept of earning commitment seems lost to most women. They rely on their looks too much. Then they get old and lose their looks. This is what is referred to in the red pill philosophy as the wall. It's around the age of 27 to 35, depending on the specific woman, when a woman's physical appearance takes a sudden dive south. She begins to find her life becoming less enjoyable because essentially her beauty privilege is fading. Guys now pay less attention to said women. And because she didn't spend her youth cultivating personality traits which men value, the asset she has exploited for the entirety of her life to get by is beginning to fail her. And she can feel her power and social leverage weaken in its sphere of influence. As her social value falls, her misery increases. It's usually at this stage where women panic. They want a family, baby, and become more open-minded in regards to learning new things, and essentially try to give their personality a makeover in order to secure a mate, both because they fear the prospect of being socially unsuccessful as well as reproductively, which ultimately leads to life loneliness. This is the stage where if a woman cannot improve herself, she'll settle for a man, quite miserably, who she perceives as beneath her because of all the hot guys she had back in her younger days. However, because her sexual value has fallen with age, she is unable to still get that same caliber of man for a one-night stand, let alone a commitment, and thus the settling. This is what ultimately leads to a lot of resentment and bitterness from women, and constitutes a huge part of the core demographic in the most radical elements of the feminist movement, blaming their lack of social sexual appeal on concepts like the patriarchy and misogyny, to rationalize away their lack of biological attractiveness to the opposite sex and the social ramifications which follow from that. Feminism. Family Destroyer. I intend this article to be more of an academic entry piece to red pill philosophy, so I have included references to my points for those who need a veneer of academic credibility in order to open their minds to facilitate the reality that can be readily observed on a day-to-day basis by any unbrainwashed human in a feminist society. I do, however, apologize that the citations do not link to the footnotes, as I don't have the software readily available to do it, so you'll have to look in the footnotes manually to see the sources. Feminism has caused a rift between the sexes, between the age-old union of man and woman, the yin and yang that makes two peas in a pod, Men and women have been culturally emancipated from each other in a social engineering effort for them to not need each other, or very specifically, so that women specifically don't need no man and can become a strong, independent woman, read lonely, which certainly begs the question, how did this come to be? This paradigm was socially engineered via the efforts of an ideology known as feminism. It was an ideology that sold women the lie that men were inherently evil beings who were oppressive in nature, and by demonizing men, 
told women they needed to give up their femininity and take on more masculine traits in order to meet men on a level playing field under some perverse pretense of equality. A divide-and-conquer technique used to pit the genders against each other, if you will. We always hear about the positives of feminism. Some real, civil rights. Some imagined, women commonly adopting boisterous and narcissistic self-entitled behavior. Not so much. Of course, the negatives are something the incredibly biased leftist media neglect to mention or even explore. They give you only one perspective. The so-called strengths but neglect to mention its weaknesses, you see. So for once, let's look at just some of the plethora of negative elements in society which we can attribute as either directly caused by feminism or correlated with but not caused by feminism. Oh boy, don't we sure have a lot to talk about. Number one, single parenthood. Single parent households are almost always headed by women. This is because women tend to unilaterally get custody in the majority of cases due to a biased family court system. Another reason for single parenthood is because women can have babies without the consent of the sperm donor. E.g., she lies to a man that she is on contraception when she is not. When he leaves his sperm inside her post-coitus, she lets it fertilize inside her and has a baby without the father's knowledge or consent. Reasoning? because she's broody and wants a child. By the time she carries the baby to term, the man is out of the picture and is completely unaware that his genetic material has been used to create human life. Single parenthood is bad. One parent is not as good as two for multiple reasons. It leads to lower resource availability. There's a lower chance of valuable skill sets being made available to the immediate family because there's only one parent with one set of skills rather than two parents with two sets of skills. And of course, then there's the big one. The primary socialization of a child. Only one gender influence on the child's development. Atypically in modern Western society, this manifests as a feminist-feminine influence with no to minimal hegemonic masculine influence on the child's development process whatsoever. The resulting lack of developmental diversity holds the child back and gives it a far from optimum start in life to fulfill the apex of its hypothetical potential. On the note of a lack of resources and the welfare state reliance which encapsulates the majority of those who can be considered single parents, children raised in single-parent households are more likely to be in poverty, as there's only one adult who can bring in money. The poverty has a knock-on effect, and increases the likelihood the child will commit a crime and spend time in jail. It also decreases the likelihood a child will reach university level and attain a bachelor's degree, as at the high school level, it has been observed they begin to fall behind. This trend is even more resounding in the case of young boys. Women cannot teach boys masculinity and what it is to live in the male condition because they simply do not experience it for themselves, and by the inherent nature of their own experience, have an opposing frame of reference. A woman can analyze and deduce masculinity from the outside and try to rationalize its nature based upon her observations, but this knowledge is inferior to that which comes from the condition of being male itself, from a man. A woman cannot teach boys methodologies which men rely upon in their interactions in handling women. 
they cannot teach them to think like men. They are far more adverse in nature, and thus have a tendency to wrap their boys up in cotton wool rather than foster his biological disposition to acquire strength via the tests and tribulations that are available to challenge and strengthen the fortitude and mettle of a young boy. This is strength an adult woman will expect him to have when he is an adult man if she is to choose him as a suitable mate. And if he doesn't man up and grow some balls, his female peers will be asking when they all reach adulthood, where did all the good men go? This, but a mere manifestation of the scam which exposes the feminist idea of gender equality as a complete sham in actual practice. The type of knowledge that boys need specifically from their fathers is that of which a man of significant value would impart onto his young son in various rites of passages, such as pep talks, trips together through hunting, sports, and other male-to-male bonding experiences. Experiences which fortify the bonds of father-to-son friendship and mentorship, which young boys need to flourish and actualize the best versions of themselves. Denying boys their fathers is inherently setting them up to fail with odds which do not favor them from the get-go, as the sheer multitude of knowledge they need to acquire which cannot be taught by their mothers, must then be learned through a psychologically painful, arduous, and often humiliating process of trial and error, leaving only the toughest boys to survive and, quite literally, fight for their masculinity. Do you need proof of these assertions, because you're cynical of such inherently conducive logic? Allow me to oblige. In single-parent households where there is the absence of a father, there is a statistically significant increase in rates of suicide, drug abuse, and alcohol abuse in young men. Single-parenthood lowers the educational attainment of boys and promotes higher dropout rates. Girls are outperforming boys in education at all levels, but especially university level now. It also increases the prevalence of behavioral disorders that can manifest in boys and increases the likelihood that the boy will commit rape. Number two, institutional and social sexism. Men must self-censor. Women need not. The ridicule of men is overt and widely accepted in the media, at work, on the street, etc. Women are allowed to make blanket generalizations, which are often offensively directed at men, usually delivered in a delightfully catty, condescending manner. And nobody bats an eyelid at this overt display of sexism. Yet you tell a 50-year-old woman she's quite old, a fact, and you've caused great offense, which needs social correction, that usually goes by something along the lines of, you never ask a lady her age. So apparently the prerequisite to receive the title of lady is simply to be old? Anyhow, I digress. It appears that apparently women are so special that many of them can't handle being old when they get old. Inversely, a woman can say you're a Neanderthal whose brain lives in his cock and nobody will bat an eyelid. A statement far more explicit than asking a woman her age or identifying that she's not young. Behold that delectable double standard. Number three, men are safe to criticize and challenge. Women are not. Following on from the previous point, women are not allowed to be criticized anymore, as apparently, We must place an incredibly high amount of priority on what one could only consider inane sensibilities which manifest from one's personal insecurities. Criticism is about feedback and improvement. But women on the feminist bandwagon 
tend to illogically rationalize anything negative-sounding as oppressive and thus shut down completely, resorting to fallacies, shaming tactics, and sticking their fingers in their ears to maintain their belief system. Quite reminiscent of religious extremism, really, isn't it? For example, most fat women cannot handle being told they're fat, that they need to lose weight, and being given advice on how to lose their weight, more than likely the woman in question will be offended you've acknowledged she has an unhealthy BMI, and she'll either shut down on you, or if she's American, possibly join one of these perverse fat acceptance movements. Ugly women, not necessarily fat, just ugly, would rather be told that they're beautiful rather than be told they're not beautiful and being advised to work on their physicality to help it become the best of what is genetically attainable for them. In this paradigm, where the feminine whims and sensibilities dictate the confines of what essentially constitutes a gynocentric society, society, including lots of clueless men, thus begin to talk more and more bullshit to placate the fragile and delicate egos of Western women, rather than be honest and help them to work on improving themselves via the distillation of tough love, also commonly known as the truth. Such is the way of life in places like Eastern Europe, where feminism is less pronounced due to the ideology being prevented from spreading there until post-1991, due to the Soviet Union and Iron Curtain. The ideology has only recently spread there, as Eastern European states have joined the EU and opened up their borders to Western European nations, which are all feminist welfare states. However, I digress again. Number four. Children from single-parent households are worse behaved. Children are no longer punished by schools or their parents, resulting in unruly behavior and audacious little scrotes saying things like, What are you going to do then? You can't hit me! in a provocatively taunting manner. This factor is exacerbated by single-parent households as the lack of a strong masculine presence often leads to a lack of self-discipline, substance abuse, and all other kinds of shit which ends up in poor behavior. Number five, violence, aggression, and any such component associated with masculinity as portrayed as negative in all absolutism. Apparently, these things can never be productive, instrumental, or beneficial, and they're always unintelligent, uncontrolled, and unproductive. Apparently, violence cannot be intelligent or purposeful. Violence can be used instrumentally to discipline people. The military use it, and they produce great, self-disciplined, strong characters. Men. Society used to use the same kind of discipline to a lesser extent. Just look at how poorly disciplined most kids are now. Go outside and observe, if need be, to see what an absence of violence-based discipline has resulted in. Aggression can be used to negotiate, haggle, win, compete, etc. Masculinity is all of these things, as is symptomatic of testosterone. To deny the male condition its right to exist is probably one of the most perverse and ironic things about feminism entirely. It claims to be about gender equality, whilst it actively vilifies one of the two genders, masculinity, as inherently malevolent and in need of subjugation. So thus, by extension of that, it demands that masculinity is subject to control in the form of checks and balances sanctioned by feminist-approved research and dogma. In short, feminism tries to pervert masculinity by redefining it with concepts like the New Age man 
and demonizing what masculinity actually is and always was. Women test men for dominance, like children test adults for dominance. If she thinks you cannot and will definitely not use your physicality as part of the contest for dominance, then she will fear little from a man castrated of any iota of imposing physical dominance and use this fearlessness abusively. It's not just about using violence, but more so the implied threat of violence. The deterrent. If you appear non-hostile as a man, then to a woman, due to absence of fear, you are immediately respected less on both a superficial and psychological level. There's a reason the high school jocks always got all the poon and respect. They were big, which subconsciously implies the ability to kick ass, protect, put her in her place when she's being irrational and insufferable. To put a more mainstream glazing on this, because some of you out there with ridiculously poor logic will try to construct a straw man of me as encouraging domestic violence, and thus all my reasoning null and moot, it is typical that a woman will respect a tall, muscular man much more than even a muscular, short man, simply because the size and the potential for that size to be used for protection and violence demands respect. And it's this implication of violence which women find inherently masculine in nature, and by extension of being masculine, attractive. We can see this most profoundly in mainstream science via women's dating preferences, where they are mercilessly biased towards preferring and dating tall men. Pre-feminism, it was socially acceptable to slap or hit a woman or child who was acting out to put them back into line. All of a sudden, post-feminism, this became a taboo, a most heinous crime. People don't seem to differentiate between hitting someone because they're unreasonable and just mindlessly trying to kill them with your bare hands. It seems in a feminist society that a smack and kicking the crap out of someone until they suffer injuries to their internal organs are synonymous acts of atrociousness. They cry, Violence is bad. You should never use violence. You should never hit a woman. I don't believe in hitting children. The reality is, not all violence is bad. It can be instrumental in reinforcing positive and constructive behaviors as long as, like anything, it is not exploited to the point of extremity or systematic abuse. Research has found that smacking small children, as long as they know you're smacking them because you care and want to correct their behavior, does not do any harm. Obviously, no such similar research has been done on the romantic relationships between men and women, as even the lightest slap from a man to a woman, but ironically not from a woman to a man, is considered domestic abuse, and thus it is deemed far too politically incorrect to study such phenomena. It would never get the funding in a modern feminist state. But I put forth and postulate that you'd find similar results in cases with male-to-female interactions. If you want to back it up with real-life observations, try asking the baby boomers or the baby boomer parents their opinions and experiences on it, assuming the people in question are willing to discuss such things. Number six, safety and comfortability are valued over liberty, risk, and hard work. What this means is a sizable number of people are getting lazy and unproductive, welfare state dependency and the authorities are able to keep tabs on an ever-increasing population size, police state, CCTV, NSA, etc. 
This is an effective change from masculine moral values to feminine ones in terms of how state government is run. Women make up the majority of the electorate, and thus have a bigger say in dictating social policy with their vote. Feminism is not the only cause of the ever-increasing emergence of what appears to be a police state in Western nations. Terrorism and 9-11 have been used as scapegoats to justify such impingement on one's personal freedoms. However, although not the sole reason, it is safe to say that the legacy feminism has left is certainly a significant reason, if not a facilitator of today's emerging Western police states. Scare the women, give them a vote, they'll vote for safety. Number seven, wages have lowered in real terms since women entered the workforce. I won't say a lot here, as the title speaks for itself. However, there is a rather sensually telling graph compiled by research done by CNN Money. Wage rates in America declined in real terms since 1968. Not so ironically, coinciding with the eruption of the feminist movement. Where one wage used to be enough to feed an entire family, now, often enough at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, two wages are needed. Number eight. People are more unhappy than they used to be due to the destruction of the family unit and the loneliness it spawns. More and more people are living alone and dying alone. There are more houses now with one person living in them than ever before. We're becoming more disconnected as a society as more and more family lines cease to continue their lineage. Instead, falling into disarray due to the ease of divorce and an overly sexualized society which promotes promiscuity over commitment in order to sell products. It's essentially an implosion of moralistic self-destruction, which attacks society's collective's baser instincts in order to rape them for profit. Number nine, the casual normalization of hyper-promiscuity. People are casually fucking others without any real pair bonding, and then opting to settle down when they're much older out of fear of impending loneliness and forced solitude, or choosing not to start a family at all. The mating culture for people of most ages is simply to use people and fuck them, forming no real pair bonds or emotional connections. Some people attempt relationships, but the strength of these relationships is adversely affected by the external temptation, which is hookup culture. Say, when a relationship is going through a turbulent time, the opportunities offered by hookup culture can seduce a spouse, leading to adultery, the eventual divulgence of said adultery to the other party involved, and then typically an end to said relationship. Hookup culture is a direct consequence of the sexual revolution which feminism sparked, ignited, and proclaimed so loudly to be proud of. The notion that female promiscuity should be untamed and socially acceptable conduct, this can still be seen even today with feminism's effort to normalize female promiscuity via campaigns such as being anti-slut-shaming. Sure, because encouraging promiscuity is not only putting one at sexual risk via the prevalence of sexual disease, but is psychologically unappealing to a man looking to seriously build and create something with a woman for the long term, thus damaging her own long-term chances at attaining happiness with a suitable suitor. Oh, the self-inflicting irony. Feminism and Women's Logic Women are a huge fucking shit test for men, because they make no sense at all 
even to themselves. They have a tendency to act first and rationalize later. Women thrive fundamentally on spontaneity. Women are the quintessential example of what constitutes irrationalism, poor logic, and a propensity to think with feelings rather than material facts. It's this fundamental lack of rationality that creates the outward impression that women aren't very credible people, seeing as, generally speaking, there is little consistent reasoning to their behaviors. Most women are not very self-aware, especially younger women. They live in the moment. They are easily swayed, and they jump from one emotional impulse to the next. They hate to take responsibility. They hate to admit to faults. They're so allergic to being wrong or being exposed in some negative way that rather commonly they'll emotionally lash out, either at you or whoever is close by and seems like a suitable scapegoat in order to cover their own asses, even when what is being said is either truthful or reasonable. Women inherently value their own sense of well-being above reality and truth. Justice doesn't factor into the equation unless she personally feels indignant about the dispute at hand. Funnily enough, if you explained and presented to a woman her illogical behavior and circumspect decisions, but instead of framing it as being part of her own behavior, you instead hold her they were the actions of another woman, she'd concur with you that this behavior was wholly irrational. It's when you apply those same facts to her, she immediately begins to feel judged and then starts shutting down. When you direct the truth at the woman involved, she can't mentally handle the manifestation of her own inadequacy. It makes her feel uneasy, and she will do anything to escape that sensation. So, what does she do? Out of mental self-preservation, she disassociates from reality and rejects the truth using flawed reasoning and stubbornness to alleviate her discomfort. Feminism does not have a strong logical basis. Its followers are typically not rational in nature. Advocates of feminism have Pavlov's dog-type responses to anti-feminism. Or, if that word offends one's sensibilities, we can call it a systematic critique of feminism's weaknesses. Or, the negative effects of feminism. Simply put, as far as feminists are concerned, the ideology they choose to identify with most strongly and live their life by can do no wrong. It delivered the poor women to salvation, where once they were traumatically and mercilessly oppressed by the cold, calculating hands of a vindictive sociopathic patriarchy. Yeah, right. This kind of thinking is incredibly synonymous with the closed-minded sentiment that religious extremists and devout followers express. A lack of impartiality, be it due to a lack of ability or simply a lack of desire to see objectively both the strengths and weaknesses of something. Because that something is something they hold dear to them, something they personally identify with on a deeper level. And to shatter that perception is to shatter a part of who they are, something that deeply troubles them. That's why feminism thrives. To its followers, it can do no wrong. It is the apple of their eye as it nestles comfortably in the core of what comprises their sense of self. An example of this is a piece I wrote about the negative effects that feminism has had on the family unit. I looked at how feminism directly contributes to messing up children, increasing a child's chances of living in poverty, increasing a child's chances of committing crime, and even how feminism and its effect on the family unit affects the educational attainment of children from single-parent families. 
However, the women and men which adhere to feminism simply don't care about these harsh realities, even with the statistics, studies, and journals to back it up. Do you know how these people can insanely ignore such perversity, despite claiming to be all about social justice? Because they're not using logic or reason. Their entire argument or point of view is emotional and subjective by its very nature. Women were always oppressed, therefore feminism. We need feminism because women are equal to men, but unequal without it. This is quite ironic, as this basically translates into logical talk as women are inferior to men and need a government-sanctioned ideology to achieve a perverse form of equality which redistributes privilege and wealth to women, but frames this redistribution of social privilege and resource management as independence. If you tell feminists about the inequality men experience, they bigotly disregard it. If this woman is even remotely representative of what constitutes a modern-day feminist, you can see that they tend to have an obnoxiously elitist disregard for MRAs and give no fucks at all about men's inherent lack of rights, privileges, and important areas of modern-day society. Typically, a feminist will address any form of male-experienced inequality with dissatisfaction or disbelief, disregarding it with some idiotic statements such as, well, that's not as bad as getting raped, as if they're under this incredible sense of perverted delusion that you can justify an inequality by saying there's a worser type of crime inequality out there, and therefore, hey, fuck this other type of inequality because it's not the worst one in existence. It's horrendous reasoning, truly. And this silly, fallacious logic has even reached the family courts, to the point where a man can be arrested for a woman's change of mind. Example. I was in court in my country, England, the other day. I was watching from the side, and a woman had got a restraining order put out against a man who had fathered a little boy with her, meaning that he was not legally allowed to visit her or see his son. The hearing was in the lowest court of the land, the magistrate's court, and the man had brought a solicitor along with him to put his case forward. What had happened was that, despite no history of violence, the court awarded the mother a restraining order against the father of the child back in 2010, per her request. The reasons for the original order being granted were not stated. The man had not seen his child since November 2010. The mother, the victim, randomly got in contact with the father again earlier this year. This is as of 2013, welcoming him back into her life. Yes, the supposed victim was welcoming back the supposed bad guy into her and their child's life. The father spent two months living with the mother, raising his little boy with the mother, until she decided that she did not want the father anymore and kicked him out onto the street. Distraught, as he had been building a bond with his son over the two months he had been living with the mother, he sent the mother of his son some non-violent text messages asking when he could see his son again. The mother ignored him, and rather manipulatively presented the text to the court as evidence of harassment. Without her verbal consent to be in contact, as she had rescinded her consent for him to see his son as casually as she had invited him back into their life, he was in violation of the restraining order issued by the court in 2010. Contacting someone via text message who has a restraining order out against you is in direct violation of the restraining order. The court clerk, a woman, no doubt, convinced the three magistrates presiding that they did not have sufficient powers to deal with the case, 
maximum sentence in a magistrate's court is six months imprisonment. So the case was moved up to the county court and will be heard at a later date in a higher court where a more serious penalty can be awarded. Does more than six months in prison for violating a restraining order with two text messages sound like justice to you? Does that sound fair? Does this man deserve to have the right removed to see his own flesh and blood? Does the child, a seven-year-old little boy too innocent to know of the perversities of reality, deserve to grow up without a father because, quite simply, his mother is confused, irrational, and possibly spiteful? No, not at all. The court doesn't care. The feminists don't care. Women hold all the cards. The child nor the man has any say in the matter at hand here. In terms of inequality, the fact of the matter is, men have always played dominant above women. Men built this planet. They made most of the discoveries, built most of the institutions, the technology, philosophy, every extravagant splendor you can imagine. Most were envisioned, imagined, built, crafted, manifested, and delivered by men. If women were so great and so on par with men, it isn't too much of a long shot to deduce they would have played a much more active part in the socio-evolutionary process. Instead, they reared children and kept house. They played logistics, nurturer, supporting man so he could live to fight another day. Feminists argue women were held down. But if women were equal to men, then how could they be held down by men? Violence, you say? Then they weren't equal, were they? They were weaker in a fundamentally limiting aspect. They were lower in the social hierarchy by merit of their own ineptitude. True, inherent, and not socially constructed equality would suggest that men would be insufficient to enact such a penalty. If you have two equal parties, one cannot overpower the other in a stalemate situation. This is assuming the preposterous notion that all men were abusive, oppressive women beaters, which is a simply hilariously, bigotedly closed-minded belief to hold about human history. However, it's not something which is far off from what the average feminist has been taught to believe. The reality is, for most of human history, it was accepted that the gender roles assigned to men and women were efficient and benefited the species in being structured in that way. That's it. There's no evil patriarchal entity systematically enslaving womankind. Feminism continues to ignore the achievements of man and focuses on the lack of achievements of women, blaming men for this paradigm rather than appreciating men for their continued sacrifice and dedication to improving the human condition. As I said at the start, it's an incredibly biased and one-sided group of people who have no room or tolerance in their worldview to see feminism criticized in even the most slightest of negative contexts. There is power with dominance. This is what a lot of the extremist feminists saw and idolized. Power. But with all power comes great responsibility. There is a heck of a lot more expectation and responsibility that comes with power, as addictive as power is to humans. There's a price to pay for having it. It's quite funny, really, because even in Western nations, people are brainwashed to say men and women are equal. But then people always expect more and better from a man. Even women themselves do. It's like an invisible sense of cognitive dissonance which permeates the social fabric. People rely on men. They lean on men, depend on men, 
and burden men with their emotions. And what appreciation do men get? Fuck all. It's an obligation, an expectation, not a favor. You don't get a pat on the back for expectations. You're a man. That's what men do. And hey, if you're not deemed superior enough to be a man, you'll be hit with some textbook shaming. Grow a pair, man up, etc. It's funny that feminists use these insults at all, actually, because it infers subliminally that masculinity is inherently superior to femininity by holding men to a higher standard of which they do not hold women to. I'm sure, of course, this irony is totally and utterly lost on them, as delicious as it is to identify. Men get vilified. They're painted as the bad guys, and it's safe to openly disrespect them without anyone screaming, Misandry! It's a perverse civilization, one that has always been and is wholly dependent on men, yet fails to appreciate them as a group for their combined contribution to human betterment. Women today are like children who were spoiled too much. You give them the world, you keep giving them rights, you keep supplicating to their whims, you give in to all their demands, and what do they do? In their own privacy, they fantasize to Fifty Shades of Grey, vigorously masturbating the shit out of their clitoris, whilst conversely talking shit about men and their negative nature during the day in the public sphere. The very same thing that they're getting off to when it's put on steroids in an erotic novel. Wow. That irony there again. I think the modern woman's sense of ironic contradiction is completely invisible to her. If you ever needed proof women aren't logical, that generalization would do a lot to enlighten you. Women don't respect men for who they are. They objectify them as success objects. They respect a man's power as it indicates his ability to be successful. Not his character, but his power. If, as a man, you become too weak, a woman will leave you. And leave you to rot, she will. The expectation is that you will be better than her, stronger than her. By nature of hypergamy, as if you are not, she simply does not find you attractive. It's for this reason alone, the sheer notion of equality, in all pragmatism, is not only deluded, but completely incompatible with human sexual attraction. A woman's loyalty is tied directly to her man's power, not his character. No power equals no attraction. Example of power. You're a manager at a store. Sure, you can fire people, get paid more, but you also have to make sure everyone is okay, comply with regulations. Everyone comes to you if there's a problem, etc. Women's inherent aptitude to reason makes them bad at these kinds of jobs. The best women make great support roles. There's a few outliers who can lead well, but generally, as a demographic, they're simply not cut out for leadership. Their inclination is to burden their staff with their responsibilities by moaning, which creates a bad leadership image. They blame shift their faults onto others. And of course, they delegate their own responsibilities to others, generally to men, expecting them to pick up the slack. Women are just not very good with pressure. They panic and they dramatize, and ironically, you'll find this funny. If you were to say this to them, it would elicit a sense of panic and drama. One that touches the essence of her ego for making her aware that she is utterly incompetent in such a manner. Through sheer indoctrination and modern female narcissism, this repeatedly observed phenomena, a widely observed truth, would be disregarded and decried. <laughs> Hilarious. 
I like women a lot. I do. I value their strange quality of seeming almost in the moment, almost innocent in their lack of ability to reason, even despite their all-too-common and incredible capability to effortlessly manipulate and inflict mental pain upon people. It's something I can never be or experience, because I'm far too logical in my disposition. And thus it presents a certain element of mystical esotericism to me. It is truly fascinating. However, feminism corrupts the feminine sensibilities and sells them the lie that men are inherently bad people, and that they as a group, women, should be wary of the group known as men. Women swallow this bullshit up, fearful as they are. Women are stupid, brainwashed, and emotional enough to believe this bile, internalize it, and regurgitate it. Patriarchy! Before you know, it'll turn out Santa Claus was real. Please. Women who were brought up by women, or otherwise raised in a feminist environment, get brainwashed too. They're derogatively referred to as manginas. They're bumbling, estrogen-fueled apologists with a cognitively unhealthy level of self-hatred, which manifests as this perverse need to supplicate to the contemporary feminine social identity. Sad. Feminism does fuck all positive for society anymore. Civil rights were about the only positive thing to come out of feminism. I perceive modern-day feminism as a form of gender segregation. It's like when the whites and the blacks sat on different sections of the bus in slavery. Now, you find women sticking with women, men sticking with men. And apart from everyone is drunk and seeking sex, the two groups barely mingle. Their opinions of each other are bad, gender relations are strained, and some people are opting out completely just giving up on the other sex entirely. It's for that reason I'd encourage my fellow men, disenfranchised with the current state of women and their indoctrinated feminist influence, to seek out more fruitful friendships with other men and focus on themselves, rather than focus on the pursuit of attaining or impressing women. Sure, you have sexual needs. None of us can help that. But placing so much of your happiness in the hands of an idealistic woman, a gentle woman, a kind woman, a non-vapid, intelligent, cerebral, wise woman, a type of woman who has been culled in masks by the brusque, curt hands of feminism, will only seek to damage one's health mentally and bring forth great pain. What you seek is a unicorn, and unicorns are a mythological species of animal. There's simply not enough to go around. We all deserve better than this feminist bullshit our forefathers have left us to deal with. But we deal with the hand we've got and live the best way that we can. That's a core tenet of the red pill philosophy. Be the best man you can be. Don't give in. Do not relent. Constantly work on yourself. Don't give in. Find pride in yourself through both your heritage and your potential to be better. Actualize your potential. Swimming in feminist ideology will just destroy you. Feminism is something you need to be aware of, as it's so entrenched in Western societies. But it's like a sickness. And red pill philosophy is the antibiotic to get it out of your disease-ridden system. A strong dose of reality to slap all that propaganda out of one's indoctrinated head. Acknowledge feminism. Understand it. Analyze its perverse nature. Except it's not going to disappear anytime soon. But reject its message. You can't change it, 
so you must coexist alongside it without believing in it. Just like people of different religions in secular countries live side by side, worshiping different gods without believing in each other's religions relatively peacefully, you must live side by side with feminists, not buying into a single iota of their babbling shit. If you can do this, you can find some semblance of happiness. Best of luck to my fellow brothers who have been unjustly wronged by this corrupt and perverse social system we've inherited. The Myth of Female Rationality, Part 1 The heart has its reasons, which reason knows not. Les Pascal Number 1. Introduction The claim that women's capacity for reason matches men's is humorous. And yet, be it espoused by radical feminists or well-intentioned humanists, the equality of reason myth persists. It was only the other week I observed two men debating woman's logical capacity. One man insisted women were less reasonable, whilst the other disagreed, whilst conceding all women are like that. Yet in spite of this concession, said man went to the lengthy effort of recalling instances where he had observed women exercising reason. It was as if this particular man wasn't quite willing to accept women are the less reasonable sex, which, ironically, is an unreasonable position in and of itself. There is, of course, a discrepancy here. A gentle person can get angry, and a frugal man can make a large purchase in the same way that an unreasonable person can demonstrate logic. A capacity for something does not equate to a propensity for it. The man who could not believe women are less reasonable is naive. The claim was not that women never make logical decisions, even a broken clock is right twice per day. The claim was that women are governed so strongly by emotion that their capacity and proclivity for reason is greatly vitiated. Ergo, their reason is inferior to man's. Even in the comments section of this very publication, the notion women are just as logical as men is oft dispelled for women are quick to offend and be offended by nature of their volatile reactivity. Now, of course, the same principle applies to man. An angry man cannot reason too well either. But here's my contention. The average woman becomes emotional far more easily than the average man. And thus, whatever reason she does possess is quickly lost when even a modicum of pressure is applied. I believe less intelligent women are simply incapable of reasoning to any elaborate degree, whilst smarter women can only do so whilst their emotions are in check, e.g., they have managed to encounter something unsettling without taking offense to it. Nevertheless, I do not believe smarter women are any less emotional than their lower IQ counterparts, but only that they have better impulse control. This is why although smart women can exercise reason, they often do so with less frequency than even the average man. Number two, my philosophical position. In my analysis of women's behavior, I try to minimize my sexism as much as possible, for I do not wish my weaker expectations of women to sustain an untrue personal delusion, but rather, I wish for my view of man as the primary sex to be grounded in sound observation and empirical evidence. For example, I observe men making sounder judgments more often than women, debating better, skewing more to the right on the IQ bell curve, as well as making the majority of discoveries and inventions that elevated us out of the Stone Age. In my inquiry into male and female differences, 
I have discovered women's sole biological reason for existing is to reproduce and nurture the young, whilst man's is to reproduce, protect his mate, oft dying in wars in an attempt to do so, and contributing to the grand project known as civilization. In case any wish to contest the point on civilization, do so bearing in mind you contend the point with a machine invented by a man, using a power source discovered and refined by a man, in a house designed and built by a man. As women are and have historically been preoccupied with child-rearing and maintaining social ties, the elevation of the human condition can thus be credited almost solely to man. Even since half a century of woman's emancipation, women have done little but accrue more money. In terms of major intellectual and civilizational achievements, few have achieved anything of significance. Yes, women have entered highly prestigious professions such as medicine and law, but do the majority of women make major contributions to their fields, or do they just teach and practice the work of men who came before them? rather than endeavoring to truly excel in, innovate, and push the boundaries of their chosen disciplines. In case it is not clear, my intent is to make a philosophical inquiry into man and woman's complementing nature as to allow for the refinement of my view. The goal is not to arbitrarily denounce one sex whilst heralding the other. If women are thereby described as being secondary or lesser in some form, it's because this is what reality is indicating to me, not because I want it to be so. Number three, how female emotivity manifests in disagreement. As somebody who likes to be proven wrong by reason and empiricism, because I can learn from this, it is disappointing, but nevertheless predictable, the majority of comments women have made in my time writing have been subpar. If it is disjointed emotional babbling, I hastily remove it to prevent an explosion of vitriolic derailment from occurring in the comments section. Despite my desire for an open forum and strong ethical appreciation for freedom of speech, not all speech is equal in its reason or value, and thus I do not permit the dregs of human thought to manifest and take root within my comments section. Censorship be damned. Offending comments are not removed on the basis of whether they agree or disagree, whether they are well-argued or not. If you disagree but make a compelling argument, I won't remove a comment. But if the person knows no better than to try to play mind games with me on my own blog, I will vibrantly dispose of their trite. The women who are offended and disagree with the content here oft do so on a profusely emotional basis, with typically little in the way of cogent reasoning in their attempts at refutation. I imagine due to the choice of topic and depth of language, my comments section attracts a higher IQ female than average. And even from this pool of women, Three kinds of comments tend to be made. Number one, I agree with what you're saying because I'm a traditional woman. Usually she's Christian or highly conservative. And my emotions, upbringing, agree with your worldview. I arrived at similar conclusions I couldn't verbalize. Reading what you've deduced has confirmed my intuitive beliefs and suspicions. Number two, I disagree with what you're saying because I cling to the interpretations of reality indoctrinated into me by feminism. Your criticism of women is misogynistic, and what you say represents everything that is wrong with society. Number three. I disagree with what you're saying because my solipsistic point of reference is more valid to me than your reason. 
I don't fit neatly into your worldview because I'm different from most women, and thus your worldview cannot possibly apply to most women. You must be wrong. A woman who makes a very well-reasoned comment is a rarity. But when it happens, it is a welcome delight, regardless of whether there is consensus. Nevertheless, such a thing is rare enough that one does not hold their breath waiting for it to occur. If illimitable men was contingent on women making reasonable comments for sound discourse and new topic ideas, as a platform for unorthodox ideas, it'd die with much haste. Now, I'm not going out of my way to be offensive here, but I am emphasizing a point. Women just aren't all that reasonable. Logic is not their primary mode of function, and this shows emphatically in their contributions. In case you think this site is read exclusively by men, you would be mistaken. I receive enough page views that even if a meager percentage of my readers are female, that's a good few thousand women. Number four, how women form opinion. Time and time again, be it a televised debate, a private argument, or even in universities where the female IQ skews higher, I see little in the way of reason espoused by women. This does not mean women do not say correct or truthful things, but rather that they do not rationally deduce truth so much as they intuit it. Intuition being the vague sensation that something feels or sounds right. Likewise, women will hold untrue and irrational beliefs, because said irrational thing feels good to believe. You should begin to see a pattern emerging here. Whether a woman holds an opinion based in truth or an opinion that isn't, this opinion is almost always held because it feels good to believe, or her peer group believes it, and thus she adopts their view. Scarcely does she hold a view because she has rigorously investigated a topic with reason and come to a conclusion she believes to be true. This is not impossible, but I believe it improbable. Often when the veracity of a woman's viewpoint is being challenged, if she believes her opinion to be true out of no more than an intuitive emotional conviction, she feels the validity of her emotion is being disputed, rather than the credibility of her reasoning. When a woman's reasoning is disputed, she oft perceives this as the invalidation of her emotion, the deprivation of her right to feel, because her opinion and its hasty conclusion is often founded upon an instinct or feeling, rather than a deduction or investigation. Women have a tendency to defensively double down on their position when they feel bad employing Machiavellian fallacies such as shaming, e.g. reductio ad absorbdom, rather than opening themselves to greater scrutiny and taking the time to step back and reevaluate their opinion. Essentially, women trust their emotions far too much. They act on their emotions almost entirely without restraint, and often fail to question, analyze, check, and hold their emotions to account. For a woman, if it feels right, then it is right. A woman does not consider that perhaps, although some things feel good to hear or believe, they may be logically unsound, false, outright incorrect, or otherwise verifiably false. One can make such discernments by comparing how men and women back up their arguments. For example, an incorrect man is generally able to devise a chain of reasoning to explain his thinking whilst a woman is scarcely capable of producing any such evidence of reasoning. Why? Because even when a man is wrong, he's thinking in a way that is logically congruent, even should his conclusion prove to be false. A woman, on the other hand, merely felt the thing to be true, 
so has no cogent basis for communicating why she believes her opinion to be correct. It just is. Number five, in closing. It appears to me that women just hold opinions, and that they have these opinions because they feel intuitively correct. And if anybody presents them with evidence counter to what they feel to be correct, rather than accept the evidence presented to them and adopt a worldview more aligned with reality, they lash out and refuse to internalize the uncomfortable truth. Women would appear prone to correcting emotional inconsistencies rather than logical ones. That is, rather, women are better adapted to coping with things than understanding them. Of course women can understand things. It would be idiotic to claim otherwise. But an underlying ability to understand does not always translate to a desire to understand. Generally, a woman won't even make the attempt to understand something if she believes the truthfulness pertaining to it will upset her emotionally. In accordance with AWALT theory, I believe this to be true of all women, but to differing frequencies. That is to say, some women are like this most of the time, whilst others are only some of the time. I'm not saying men are infallible and do not blunder or even indulge in the exact same ignorance either. I believe they do. Just with less frequency, reckless abandon, and fervor than do women. I have a lot of thoughts on this topic, so in part two, expect me to explain how conformity, shame, and female evolutionary psychology almost compel women into Machiavellian emotive responses rather than honest or logical ones. It should be noted, this article has been designed as an introductory piece for a more substantive follow-up. The Myth of Female Rationality, Part 2 If someone doesn't value logic, what logical argument could you provide to show the importance of logic? Sam Harris Number 1. Introduction in part one, I speculated on the way women reason and adopt opinions, concluding they typically form conclusions based upon intuition, what feels right, and mimicry, copying others, rather than deduction, analysis. I highly recommend reading part one before getting into the meat of this article, so if you haven't done that, please do so before proceeding. Number two, herd dynamics, needily conformist. Women are innately Machiavellian, and thus superficially concerned with fitting in and appearing agreeable in order to be liked enough to enjoy the fruits of the groups they occupy. There are perfectly sound evolutionary arguments for why this is so, which I'll get into later. But nevertheless, to begin, I shall explore the what rather than the why. A woman's most pressing concern, in spite of what she says to the contrary, is how she is perceived and how this translates into whether she holds favor or not. Being liked and desired is far more important to women than it is to men, men requiring respect rather than intimate emotion validation to function. In fact, acceptance from others is so vitally important to women that they will change an entire wardrobe, religion, sexual or political orientation in order to be and feel accepted. If you observe rates of religious conversion, meaning from one religion to another, you will find women will convert from one religion to another more often than men. As we say on the red pill, fickleness is a strong trait of the feminine, and it manifests in all matters of importance, from apostasy to divorce. The most common reason for religious conversion is to marry a man of another religion, and thus be accepted and enjoy his economic resources. Whilst the most common reason for shedding religion is to find a socially acceptable way to be promiscuous, 
basically denounce one's faith and become a fertility-negative atheist feminist. In the UK, this is native British women converting to Islam so they can have more victim credibility, as well as a politically correct reason to be feminine rather than feminist. It also serves as a way to increase the perception of their purity and respectability, as Muslim women are not reputed for promiscuity in the way that atheist and Christian women are. When one realizes this, it becomes obvious why many Western women embrace Islam so enthusiastically. In the U.S., this is Mormon and Christian girls becoming atheist via feminist support groups so they can whore it up in their prime without feeling retroactively impure. These women are almost always completely insane because they do not entirely remove their religious programming. Yet, in spite of this, they conflict themselves by attempting to supplant the religion they were taught as a child with a fundamentally irreconcilable belief system. This, quite predictably, leads to a spiritually dysfunctional individual torn between two conflicting sets of dogma. Nevertheless, they appear to be able to defy the religion they were raised with, so long as they have a gaggle of feminist whores to cheer them on and validate their poor life decisions. Again, this is the female proclivity for groupthink, and a desire to be validated, overriding incisive and cogent analysis. Women in and of themselves rarely stand for something because they have deduced it to be true and correct, but rather they believe what they do due to prolonged proximity. So they believe what their teacher believes, or what their mother believes, or what their friends believe, rather than really analyze something and see if it's true with their own minds. No, it seems a woman's instinctual need to be accepted is so strong that she indulges conformity rather than ingenuity to scratch the irksome validation itch. And that so long as this itch is scratched, she is content enough to submit to authority and not ask questions. Number three. Evolutionary Theory of Feminine Emotional Dominance So why are women like this? Why do women care more about approval, attention, validation, fitting in, and being liked? Whereas men like these things, but do not crave nor depend on them so emphatically to healthily function. It is my speculative contention that in the ancestral environment, women were dependent on the herd for their provisioning, and that a woman cast out of the herd would, in all likelihood, die. Women have less stamina, less muscle mass, and are physically less capable of successfully hunting animals equipped with any sufficient defense. Thus, they make for poor hunters. Without a tribe's hunters sharing their food, and weapons to hunt for food, with a group in which women were members, said women would in all likelihood subsist on berries, or perish. Assuming this is the case, it partially explains women's strong herd orientation and extroversion, because ensuring acceptance by the group is what a woman's maternal ancestors had to do to survive. I believe it is because of this that women have developed a keen social intuition based on feelings and vibes that allows them to better detect whether somebody likes or dislikes them. If one's survival is contingent on successfully hunting animals for nourishment, men were the hunters, it would make sense one would develop a propensity for deduction. Whereas, if one's survival is more dependent on being liked than it is being innovative, it makes sense one would develop a sensitivity toward the mood and disposition of others. I believe female emotional dominance to be no more than a survival instinct, an instinct oft so strong it dominates the feminine consciousness utterly. It would appear woman's instincts, in tandem with menstruation, thus greatly inhibit her ability to think abstractly. This idea, particularly that of hormones, 
perhaps gives credence to the idea that the most rational of womankind tend to be post rather than pre-menopausal. Seeing as a post-menopausal woman is no longer an evolutionary asset, either already having served her purpose of having children or being a dead end, the sensitive neuroticism typical of younger females may quell the sensitive need-to-be-accepted instinct enough to permit a strong preference for rationality. Number 3A. Logic versus emotion-based interpretations of good and bad. Good to a man is that which sounds truthful and reasonable. Bad to a man is that which sounds untruthful or unreasonable. Reasonability to a man is based on plausibility and deduction. Reasonability to a woman is based on whether something provides or punishes. Rather simplistically, good to a woman is what feels good. Bad to a woman is what feels bad. A woman's definition of good and bad bear little logical merit. For a woman rather be told pretty lies that charm her than be saved from colossal error that rouses ill feeling. In fact, if you give women wisdom that will save them, should it happen to feel bad, they will opt to ignore it, hate you for eliciting negative feeling, and defy you in the hasty deduction you're an enemy. Women are not known for living harmoniously with reality. They have a propensity to weave and work with delusion because they have a blind trust for emotion and value the convenience that such rapidly attained certainty provides. Of course, the cunning can easily manipulate emotion for less than noble purposes. Are pickup artists not the perfect proof of this? So if women are so impervious to logic and reason discussion, how do you persuade them into a particular course of action? Well, of course, one must speak in the language of emotion, of which there are two primary mechanisms of influence, shame, guilt, and approval, validation. Whatever is validated, approved of, and praised is that which feels right to women, regardless of whether the thing being promoted or praised is a toxic value of a declining and degenerate culture. Toxic here is not meant as a value judgment, but rather meant in the sense, sure, that feels good right now, indulge it, go right ahead, but in the long run you will regret what you just did, it will make you feel horrible, and you won't be able to take it back because it's done and all you're left with is self-delusion in an attempt to cope. Number four, herd dynamics, shame and approval. A woman's beliefs and behaviors are like water. They reflect whatever the culture and immediate group around her tell her. Women do not defy, they conform. Today's unruly women who defy men do not do so because they are mavericks of great ingenuity and critical thinking defying the natural order, no, they defy man to conform with the pervasive feminist indoctrination that dominates our public institutions, contemporary academia being of particular note. Even traditional women, women who value house and child over corporations and careers, are under constant attack from shrill feminist harpies, shamed and derided for their maternal instinct, and bombarded by ideological vomits such as, you've internalized the patriarchy's misogyny. These women are the real mavericks going against the grain. Those who follow in the footsteps of their grandmothers and their mothers before them. Yet the vast majority of today's women are neither traditional nor respectful of men. And I will tell you why. She cannot see through the deception because she needs approval more than the truth. She defies man because she was told to. 
not because she can think for herself and is deduced after much philosophizing that denouncing men is in her best interest. And hint, it isn't. She does not possess a reasoning faculty strong enough to ascertain whether the denunciations of men she was inculcated with are fact, the sexual sabotage of women with dried-up ovaries, or nothing more than fictional lesbianic hate porn designed to convince heterosexual women to service the lusting loins of aposomatic lesbian predators. No, she absorbs it all, hook, line, and sinker. High-status female celebrities such as Beyoncé are feminists. Her college professors are feminists. Her mother's probably a feminist, who after fucking around in the slutty 70s and 80s, settled down in the 80s or 90s with a less-than-top-tier man so devoid of masculine energy that nobody in the house respects him, her mother and brother included. So is today's woman really a free thinker? An ideological maverick, an innovator, or inventor? Of course not. And it is the grand and perverse irony of feminism that women have become lesser rather than greater in their misguided quest for emancipation from men. Scarcely has any woman ever been a maverick or inventor, for they are the conformists. Even the bulk of them vote for socialists. Open your eyes! This is why matters of ingenuity have always been the almost sole perfume of man being that the faculty of reason comes more easily to man, and that the primitive instincts we know as emotion do not compel man quite so emphatically as they do women. Man is not infallible, no, but he is far less sensitive to the vast array of conceivable emotional manipulations one can be targeted by. There's a reason marketers target women and not men. They're more profitable, because despite their Machiavellianism, their lack of reason and need for approval makes them more manipulable. Women's self-conscious preoccupation with appearing clean and pure is an instinctual need not apparent in men. This is perhaps not rooted solely in evolutionary psychology, but could be an intuitive observation of social market value, the inarticulable emotional knowledge that a woman's power is eroded rather than enhanced by promiscuity and aging. Number five on solipsism. The reason feminism even exists is because men possess the capacity to emphasize with the female viewpoint at the sacrifice of their own. Did feminism not come to power by appealing to the sympathies of reasonable and loving men rather than through a bloody coup? Well, of course, for women could never win a direct military conflict against the sex evolved for combat. Of course, being a man, my viewpoint is biased, and it would be easy to egotistically dismiss my philosophizing on the basis of said fallibility. However, I believe as imperfect as my views are, that among my speculation there is a spirit of truth to be gleaned. For as biased as man can be, a logician such as I can at least abstract into the female viewpoint in an attempt to comprehend what they cannot even articulate. For those unfamiliar with what solipsism is, Explained in the simplest way, it's women's tendency to see things solely from a personal or feminine viewpoint, and an inability to detach and abstractly comprehend something they haven't personally felt or experienced. As such, they struggle to understand things that run contrary to their personal experience. The capacity for feminism to understand the plight of men is impossible, for gynocentrism is inherently devoid of abstraction by merit of its collective solipsism. Feminism is thus no more than a resoundingly negative variant of female solipsism repackaged at the ideological level. Realize a woman's solipsism is why she makes no sense in saying whatever the fuck it is she wants when you ask her, 
and why you always have to make the decisions. Said solipsism manifests politically on the macro scale, as even feminists are often unable to interpret their monotheistic dogma in the same way. This is the problem with feelings and emotions. You see, they are not objective, verifiable, or empirical. Everyone just sort of does feminism in whatever way feels right to them. Because women have different degrees of sentimentality attached to situations which produce a specific emotion, when a question is asked that rouses said emotion, they all have a different answer. And this lack of consistency only further serves to reduce the credibility of women, reinforcing the belief that women are less logical. Weak logic means no corroboration, meaning no credibility. I think the only group taken less seriously than women are feminists. For at least some women make an effort to combat their solipsistic disposition, whereas feminists are entirely reliant on the wishy-washy lunacy of emotive subjectivity in order to prop up their narrative. Feminism embodies the very worst of female instinct and is an abhorrent weaponization of all the feminine's worst qualities. I believe with the right cultivation, a woman can be far more enlightened than a feminist albeit not more so than an erudite man. Women think they want to lead, but hate when they have to. They fear being powerless, but cannot handle power. Women are man's burden, a constant storm that needs grounding. Her infantile narcissistic need to be treated with the respect of a man, yet simultaneous need to be led, means she's conflicted in what she wants. This swirling chaos of self-centered, indecisive confusion embodying the very spirit indicative of the female mind. Solipsism. Number six. Distinguishing logical ability from logical propensity. A capacity for logic and being logical are distinct. Men have a capacity for emotion, but because most men prefer to, and often do, act on reason instead of emotion, they are considered logical, not emotional. To be emotional 10% of the time is not to be an emotional person. It is to be a person who is capable of emotion that is rational the majority of the time. Just because men are more rational does not mean they are robots incapable of emotion. People see a very black-white pluralism towards emotion and logic. That a logical person is never emotional, men. And that an emotional person is never logical, women. Most men will act upon logic more often than women, so men as a group are seen as logical. For women, it's the opposite, a capacity for logic but with a preference for emotion, and hence a propensity to act upon emotional volition. Women will act on emotion more often than men, so women as a group are seen as emotional. Maxims don't need to be perfectly true to be correct. They need only be accurate most of the time. One need not be right all the time, for it is wiser to operate from generalizations that lead one to be right most of the time than it is to reject said generalization on the basis it's wrong some of the time. The prior believes in an imperfect statement on the basis it's usually right. The latter rejects an imperfect statement on the basis it's fallible. Rejecting the veracity of something on the basis it is fallible and not correct 100% of the time has to be one of the grandest forms of ignorance conceivable. Yet, sadly, it is very common. Women have a capacity for logic. But because most of the time they cannot segregate emotion from logic, their capacity for logic does not equate to possession of a logical nature. 
A person that possesses logic, who is ill-equipped to segregate it from emotion, is not as logical as someone who possesses the same logic but can better segregate it from their emotion. Having a capacity for something does not make you the thing you can sometimes do, to be characterized as something, that part of yourself has to be dominant, a capacity preferred and used often. On the logic-emotion spectrum, you have to err more towards logic than you do emotion to be considered logical. The fact you possess an ability to think logically doesn't matter if you're oft overridden by the visceral impulses we know as emotion. Don't cling to the idea that just because a woman can have a logical thought, that she is illogical being ruled by logic. This is a false equivalency. If women were logical rather than emotional beings, it would be glaringly obvious. So obvious, this essay would probably not exist. Hence, pointing to a woman's capacity for logic, and then saying they are just as logical as men, is a preposterous, if not idealistic, notion that cherry-picks only what it wants to see. Number seven, in closing. The rationalization hamster may be good at speaking the language of logic, for the well-trained hamster is an eloquent sophist. It is believed you should ignore what they say and watch what they do, because women, particularly the higher IQ ones, are great at speaking the language of logic without actually operating by it. They can adorn it, wear its clothes, and go into verbal combat waving its flag, all without actually changing their innate decision-making processes. They'll act emotively and then rationalize the reason for behaving emotionally with something that is plausible yet factually false. Some women are so proficient in doublethink, is this intelligent or a lack of self-awareness? I'm, I'm undecided. That they actually believe they're logical because they deludedly believe their own rationalizations. Women use logic to rationalize emotional decisions. And occasionally they make choices based on logic, but their preference and mechanism for action is overwhelmingly emotional in nature. To believe otherwise is not merely naive, but resoundingly idiotic. The friend zone scam and marriage. We hear a lot of talk about the friend zone, and a lot of women bleeding indignantly in response about how what she does with her body is up to her, and all that other irrational, defensive, hyperbolic nonsense, which does not even address why the existence of the friend zone is even an issue of contention to begin with. Then there are the worthless assertions thrown around, such as real men accept what a woman is comfortable with in a quote unquote friendship or some other bullshit true Scotsman statement based in fallacy from someone who has no clue, neither authority to possibly know or dictate exactly what it constitutes to be a man. This article and its follow-ups aim to hopefully get down to the nitty-gritty of things and really iron out just what the fuck is actually going on with the friend zone. Briefly for your understanding, this article will discuss why does the friend zone exist? to serve the needs of one party, typically the females, without fulfilling the needs of the other party. What's the problem with the friend zone? It's an issue of value transaction. The friend zone is an inequitable exchange of value which only fulfills one of the party's desires, typically the feminine imperative. And finally, how the friend zone that is often viewed as an obstacle on the path to attaining sex from a woman can retroactively be implemented after the fact sex has been had, in the form of no future sexual favors being on the table once emotional commitment has been unilaterally secured. Typically, 
although not exclusively resulting, as a product of marriage. This article is aimed mainly at guys who, for lack of a better language, have not got a fucking clue about women, and find themselves a slave to the whims of any attractive female in their lives who throws them some attention, be she the hot girl at work, or even your own wife. These guys are the same guys who generate the problem, which is the female ego quantum singularity, by not being on top of their shit, putting the pussy on a pedestal, and letting women take them for a ride. There are many pretty girls in the world. Abundance mentality is a cornerstone in avoiding the friend zone. However, it is also paramount in having respect for oneself and maintaining a healthy sex life. As the late and great Patrice O'Neill would say it, showing a bitch you've got options. This still applies once you have reached the mating stage that is a relationship, or dare I say it, marriage. You can never stop gaming. As a man, you have to realize what your leverage is and how to apply it to get what you want out of a woman, which, if you are completely honest with yourself and your desires, includes a pronounced and fierce monopoly of her body as a sexual resource. Essentially, by not realizing what your capital is within the context of a relationship with a woman, you have nothing to barter that has value to her of which she doesn't already receive from you. Suffice to say that if you're in the friend zone, then you're essentially giving away what she values for free without even realizing it, or you wouldn't even be a friend to begin with. Friend zone friendships are strictly one-sided as they allow her to derive more benefit from the arrangement than you do. By not making a woman work for what she wants from you, she will never grow to appreciate what it is you bring to the table. In fact, she will come to expect it. And she will even go so far as to punish you for any perceived slight or insubordination should she have grown accustomed to your emotional commitment. If you were to suddenly, out of frustration at being a friend zone chump, get annoyed with the situation and pull the plug, because you've finally woken the fuck up, by ceasing to provide her with the emotional nourishment she was deriving from you, and may perhaps have become dependent on from you, then her wish to reprimand you for pulling away will be pronounced most indignantly. In such a situation, one wants to slowly fade out of her life, rather than having an over-the-top and dramatic altercation where she will attempt to re-ensnare you. However, that line of discourse is content which is par for the course in a follow-up article. Beige Philip rule number three. Repeated favors become obligations. Your emotional commitment to a woman is worth its weight in gold in terms of how much value and desire a woman places upon it. A woman desires a man's emotional loyalty, and essentially her monopoly of that, above all else. Whilst as a man, your desires firmly place sexual loyalty, and your monopoly of her body above all else. This is the exchange of value taking place in a successful, romantic transaction. Your emotional commitment and resources for the use of her body. This is why men are always asking, why is she so clingy? Why does she nag so much? Why does she become so dramatic and overbearing at times? Whilst women are asking, why is it that all men think about is sex? Why can't they look past that and see women as people and not mere sex objects? The difference in male to female perspective is simple. Women don't need to use men for their bodies to fulfill their gender imperative. And thus, it's not their psychological inclination to do so. They are wired to use men for their resources and commitment. 
and a one-sided friendship where a woman has a man in the draconian friend zone fulfills her imperative, while simultaneously the male imperative to pass on his DNA and satiate his raging testosterone-filled libido is not fulfilled by said arrangement. It is a biased arrangement, which fulfills the needs of the woman to some or all ends, depending on the severity of the arrangement, whilst not being mutually beneficial for the man in any similarly equitable capacity. In blue pill, everyday, society, men are made to feel bad for their sexuality. They're scorned for not wanting to be used by a woman in the manner which the friend zone in place sets out and often shamed into compliance. They're scorned for their sexuality and lustful desire, when in reality, as a point of justice, the ones who should be scorned are the women. The same women who ruthlessly use men so callously and pragmatically as surrogate providers for their desires and lifestyle choices, whilst not providing any return on the services he provides, or doing so begrudgingly or sparingly, merely as a manipulative effort to keep him content enough to stick around. Cue the notorious duty sex or pity sex women throw beta men. The sexual scraps that essentially only the best of the best beta providers can acquire after having provided an inordinate amount of value. Yet again, this results in a biased and unfair transaction between man and woman. Even though sex does take place, rather than the typical mono-directional level of emotional and material needs being fulfilled on behalf of the man, whilst comparatively, the woman provides no fulfillment of needs in return for such provision the predominant masculine need being the monopoly of her sexual favor. Women are aware of why men do things for them. They play dumb, but on a Machiavellian level, they're quite smart. They have high Machiavellian intelligence. They play stupid for the sake of appearances, so that they can squirm and escape accountability by keeping their hands clean via the employment of plausible deniability. But ultimately, a woman with many beta orbiters Despite any well-placed display of ignorance, she feigns knowing full well what she is doing and why she is doing it. The reality of the matter is she just doesn't care about the needs of the man, so long as one or a number of her needs are being met by that man, and so long as he fulfills his purpose in her life. She is entirely happy to carry on exploiting his sexual desire of her whilst not reciprocating or giving in to these demands only implicating the promise of sex to keep him around, should he look like he's about to leave, and throwing him duty sex, should she really value his contributions to her life. In fact, there was a documentary made in the UK of such women who engage in this behavior, albeit in a more ostentatious and predatory manner. The sole episode aptly titled, Sex, Lies, and Rinsing Guys. Using a man's sexual proclivity for a woman and turning him into a provider for said woman without said woman giving said man any sexual access is exploitative of the man's nature and completely immoral on the behalf of the woman. Yet this happens all the time, and society is perfectly happy to ignore, reinforce, and even encourage said behavior. Men and women are ultimately never equal in part due to the differences in our sexual imperatives, let us not forget, and the difference in agenda, and how it's pursued by each gender is merely one significant indication of these sexually dimorphic differences in mating psychology. The friend zone, however, is not just a hurdle on the path to getting sex from a woman, which magically disappears once sex has been attained, 
A woman can friendzone you even after having had sex with you. And a more cunning woman may use sex as a way to secure your commitment before withdrawing it later on, and simultaneously seeing if they can extract emotional commitment and resources from you without having to keep up their end of the bargain. If you let her imperative win here within the context of a relationship or even marriage, you're allowing her to power drill nails into the coffin of your romantic arrangement, as once you allow such behavior to become commonplace, she has pegged you for a chump. Allowing her to derive benefit from you without requiring sex from her causes her to lose attraction to you, as there's no value exchange. The ability for her to benefit from you without being required to service your needs causes her to lose respect. The dying attraction is often communicated in feminine, candy-floss, ethereal mumbo-jumbo bullshit speak as the spark's just not there anymore, and thus she'll reconnoiter off to start the cycle all over again with another man, shit-testing him to see how easily he'll give up his commitment to her, and then offering sex to him when he maintains attraction without freely and disposably giving away said commitment to her. As a man, Emotional investment in a woman should only be given to her as positive reinforcement for behavior that is conducive to your desires and or the betterment of the relationship. Suffice to say, that if she's fucking you and engaging in desirable feminine behaviors, then keep giving her love and emotional nourishment. However, if she's going to callously cut off sex and withhold it in an attempt to test the boundaries of the relationship and get you to do what she wants, you, in turn, need the ability to callously cut off your commitment to her. Or otherwise, you set a precedent that every time she withdraws sex, you fold all your cards without her losing anything she values, despite her atrocious behavior. This is the only leverage you have, also known as dread game, and is ultimately why marriage can turn into the Guantanamo Bay of friend zones. Now, onto the idea of marriage being a glorified friend zone. Beta males in sexless marriages are, in effect, existing in a form of legally sanctioned friend zone. A husband who isn't getting any from his wife has been essentially soft-nexted friend zone for his utility, but no longer deemed sexually attractive and thus not respected by his wife. Furthermore, she's probably fucking another guy behind his back, unless her birth control has turned her into something of an asexual automaton, which is not as rare as you'd perhaps think. A woman who respects her man fucks her man. If she's withholding sex for any reason other than the most extreme of medical reasons, then her withholdment of sex is considered a transgression which violates the nature of your manly desires, and thus can be considered an unspoken disrespect of your position within the relationship. Quintessentially, in essence, although in something of a more extreme and heightened state, a sexless marriage engages in the same social dynamics as an 18-year-old beta orbiter who picks up the girl of his affections in his car and then drives her around acting on her whims as a glorified taxi, buying her gifts to demonstrate his affection. Because in all its beautiful blue pill bullshit, she's just such a good friend. These behaviors are typically engaged in as some completely vain attempt to try to impress his way into her pants by giving her everything she wants up front without asking for anything in return. The difference as a married man and not an 18-year-old beta orbiter are that you're actually legally obliged to ensure her feminine imperative is fulfilled. And fuck, perhaps there are even a few children thrown into the chaos for good measure, which effectively ensures you remain firmly placed in the friend zone. 
This dynamic does nothing but culminate in the successful attainment of the female imperative. Her, meaning your wife, receiving the ultimate commitment her biology desires from a man, you, backed up in all its strength by the full force and recognition of law. Should you so choose to violate this legally mandated commitment, you will be taken for everything you've got. Whilst quite perversely remaining in the marriage leads to an incredible sense of frustrated entrapment, leaving you with little desirable exit strategies to remedy your quandary. Allowing her to ruthlessly trap you by enforcing an unhappy sexless marriage is tantamount and equivalent in value exchange to that of the friend zone, where the man in question is just a friend providing benefits to the arrangement whilst not receiving any from her himself. If she cuckolds you, what can you do as a married man? Nothing. Whatever you do results in immense loss for yourself. You cannot come out unscathed. It's the ultimate form of modern-day socially accepted slavery, which allows women to systematically and legally pillage a man for everything he has without remorse and not be punished for such behavior, either socially or legally. Marriage is no longer a religious institution that holds people accountable for their behaviors, as marriage oaths have become nothing but ceremonial pleasantries, rather than promises which hold both parties accountable. Oaths being so easily and nonchalantly broken as they are, marriage has been hijacked by the feminist agenda and perverted into an engine of exploitation by women of men, which has ultimately resulted in what is known as today's growing marriage strike across the Anglosphere. The Hierarchy of Love When a woman marries again, it is because she detested her first husband. When a man marries again, it's because he adored his first wife. Women try their luck. Men risk theirs. Oscar Wilde Number 1. Introduction Women don't love. They only care for themselves. This is a comment from a gentleman I came across recently that made me stop to give pause. After some pondering, I came up with the essay you're about to read. I must conclude that I disagree with the statement that inspired this particular piece of literature. I do suspect that the gentleman who said what he said felt it to be true with every inch of his fiber, but I do not believe the assertion to be right. Nevertheless, I am sympathetic to his sentiments, for although he is wrong, he is not entirely. It is, at least among the old guard of the Red Pill community, an established truth that women do not love men in the way that man wants to be loved. Number two, irreconcilable love. The problem is contingent on not only the way in which a man craves to be loved, but likewise the way in which woman is capable of loving. Man desires a sacrificial love. Sacrifice implies loyalty and connection. What men want from love, and what woman's love amounts to, is fundamentally irreconcilable. In matters of love, and not simply lust, man is an optimistic egalitarian. He loves as he wishes to be loved. In matters of love, when man is young and oblivious to the ways of women, he is a true adherent of the golden rule. The folly of man's nature lies in the belief that the loyalty quintessential to women's maternal instinct will be available within a romantic context. He believes rather foolishly that, as his mother loved him, the idealized girlfriend could. 
he sees how women love their children, and upon making such an observation, concludes that women are capable of great love. This is true, they are. Only sadly, this great love is a love reserved solely for children. It extends not to man. As such, man has an idealization of women's love, not a realization. Man desires that which is unattainable to him. Unaware the love he desires is maternal in nature, unable to be felt for him. Nature plays a cruel trick on the psychology of man. It gives him a very pure, high-quality love in his childhood. It gives him a template for woman's love that he comes to expect a standard of all women. He is taught by his mother's love that unconditional loyalty, noble character, gentleness, sacrifice, and trust are intrinsic of the feminine essence. And so, as he grows from a boy into a man, he comes to the rather logical conclusion that if he is a good man, he can expect to be loved by his lover in much the same way. His mother, well-meant but quite incorrectly, likewise affirms this notion to him. This is a wicked lie, but a man whose heart is yet to be broken does not realize this. He thinks woman's love is immutable. He knows not that her love for child is different from that of her love for him. And so man longs to be loved like a child, not realizing such a love is reserved for children. Believing that the love he covets is romantic love, when truly it is maternal love. Such a man, of course, lacks the experience or nuance of mind to make this distinction. And so the tragedy for this man is learning that women do not love men like they love children. The unconditional loyalty inherent to the maternal bond is all but absent from the mating bond. Most men do not realize this. They love wholesomely, right up until they are emotionally blindsided by a woman in the most violable of ways, forced to reevaluate their opinion of female nature. This is not a hypothetical so much as it is an eventuality. If lucky, post-breakup they end up on this blog or elsewhere similar. From there on, man can learn to reevaluate his notion of woman's capacity to love. He will come to learn woman's love for her mate is a vastly reduced moral and psychological quality than that of her love for her child. How he responds to such powerful knowledge will ultimately shape what kind of man he decides to become. Be it a man going his own way, a disillusioned bachelor looking to use women for nothing but sex, or a patriarch who runs his house like a business, aware of the risk, but acting in all his power to mitigate it. However cruel as it may seem, women are incapable of reciprocating man's love. They love differently. There is a hierarchy of love that trickles down. Man sacrifices for woman, and woman for child. Rarely does the river flow upward. As such, if man is to believe that women can love to the same extent as he, then he is doomed to disappointment and misery when she invariably acts within accordance of her nature rather than his idealization. Number three, the caveat. Most of you have been with me up until this point. Some of you aren't. Earlier, I made a point of saying that he believes rather foolishly that as his mother loved him, the idealized girlfriend could. This has a double meaning that very few would have the range of experience or nuance of mind to pick up on should I not be pointing it out. Essentially, when read, those of you who had a good mother would have, if not now, at least at some point thought, 
I hope I can find a girl that's as sweet and caring as mom. Then there are those who had narcissistic, detached, unloving mothers. The mothers who always put on a good public face of being nothing other than wonderful, but due to an affliction of personal defect, did not share the love intrinsic to the maternal bond with their son. I am shocked by the sheer number of men I've spoken to who have had mothers that never really loved them. Ergo, my mother was very loving. But I can't say, knowing what I know now, that I'm surprised. Men who had mothers that never endowed them with the maternal bond find it easier to swallow the red pill and understand female behavior as adults. It is a recurring observation of mine that men, deprived of maternal love, are better adapted for dealing with women as mates in adulthood. The man who grew up as a neglected boy never foolishly believed that a girlfriend would love him as his mother would. He believed she would love him exactly as his mother did, with extreme conditionality. This is to say, the man who never experienced maternal love as the typical man in boyhood did, would not come to idealize female love as a man. Rather perversely, the standard of which such a man holds women to romantically is more in line with their true nature. Unlike most men, he was not taught to expect a sacrificial love from women, because he never experienced this love to begin with. His mother didn't love him like a mother, but like a partner. Ergo, he was loved for his utility rather than his essence. And so it stands to reason that man's frame of reference for the quality of woman's love is based upon how his mother loved him. A man whose mother did not love him like a child when he was a child is therefore, in adulthood, at a perverse advantage. He has no idealization to shatter because his expectations of women in relationships are realistic. Number four, woman's love defined. The epitome of a woman's love is infatuation. To define it, this is a lust for your power and an obsession with how your character makes her feel, secondary to your power. It's put crudely, opportunism and emotional self-appeasement alchemized with lust. Man oft forgets that love does not flow upward in the sacrificial sense. He makes the mistake of thinking that because he can love a woman without lusting for her, that a woman can do the same. She cannot. Because her love is not based on sacrifice. It is based on the appreciation of man's sacrifice met with lust. The more man sacrifices for a woman, the more likely he is to fall in love with his investment. The more a woman sacrifices for man absent of animal lust, the more repulsion she feels for him, interpreting her need for investment as a shortcoming on his part. And so there it is, unspoken in word but detached in sentiment. Woman expects man to love her more than she loves him, reinforcing the hierarchy of love. Female sacrifice is predicated on lust and mental entrapment. Male sacrifice is expected and freely given. Number five, love and female self-deception. A woman who does not lust for you cannot love you as you wish to be loved. Lust is the basis for her love. Absent of lust, you have like rather than love. Such a woman can do naught but use you and lie to you both that she is in love when she isn't. If it is convenient for a woman to be in love, she will convince herself she is in love so that she might convince you of it. Women are masters of self-deception, so one must be extremely cautious in assigning 
any substance to their convictions. Treat such earnest emotional conviction as sophistry. Women are, generally speaking, emotionally neurotic. Women who become too self-aware can end up hating themselves because they cannot overcome their animal elements. They can't make themselves love you in the way you want them to, even if they tried to. To do so would ravage them with immeasurable misery. So as unfair as you may think it is that your girlfriend can never love you the same way your mother did, it is likewise unfair to expect her to do so if you wish her happiness. I am of the belief that this is why society has collectively lied to itself for generations. The truth threatens the nuclear family. You only have to look at the men-going-their-own-way movement to see that. Many men would struggle with the idea of family upon discovering the whole host of red-pill truths that are to be found. Ignorance is bliss for a great many. As such, the knowledge on this blog is as much powerful as it is dangerous. Number six, in closing. Women are what they are. Your perception of women, no matter what that might be, is powerless to change their fundamental nature. You can, with the knowledge you've acquired, learn to accept them, or you may reject them out of unappeasable disappointment predicated on the idea that women's love just isn't worth it. We can argue about what is right for society, what is right for your personal situation, and all the rest, as many of you like to do, but ultimately this is a personal choice. It is your choice to make, not mine, not anybody else's. Once you have this information, that choice cannot be taken from you. The answer will be different for every man depending on where he's at in his life's journey. Learning red pill truths exerts incredible impetus on a man to mentally mature and decide what he wants out of women, as well as life. What you want will change with age. A 20-year-old is prone to naively think he's going to be a bachelor forever. An old, divorced man may have resigned himself from what he deems folly. A guy that's been slaying in bars for the past decade might be worn out and wants something with more depth. Thus, as men are prone to do, he returns to the question of how women love, and how he can act on his need to love without effectively destroying himself. The men who do not see a way to love without losing who they are and what they have gained materially are the men who reject love. Number seven, relevant reading. The German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer had some great insight on women. If anybody knows of a condensed work, as in a publication which has compiled the entirety of Nietzsche's views on women, then let me know and I'll add it here. To my knowledge, Nietzsche's views on women are sprinkled across numerous works, and as such, there is no one single work I could recommend. Understanding Female Psychology One ought to hold on to one's heart, for if one lets it go, one soon loses control of the head, too. Friedrich Nietzsche Number 1. Introduction as I write this, I cast my mind back to a time I did not understand women. It's surreal to write on how women work when one so vividly remembers being a man clueless in such matters. As a clueless man bereft of the knowledge my sanity demanded, I would ask men to explain women. I would ask women to explain women. And I would ask Google to explain women. Nobody really knew what they were talking about. The only answers I would get were gynocentric inanities mixed with general rhetorical platitudes such as be yourself and be confident. 
the problem with the mainstream gynocentric viewpoint is it teaches men how to be a good slave rather than a good master. It teaches men how to cater to women rather than how to inspire a woman's desire to cater to them. It actively suppresses truths related to women while spreading vitriolic untruth about men. At this point, it seems the system would prefer that men are useful but ignorant rather than enlightened and sovereign. Men yearn to understand women, for they wish to attract them as well as protect themselves from womanly predations. This knowledge is essential paramount sustenance all but crucial for the preservation of man's sanity. And yet, quite sadistically, this wisdom eludes most men, no matter how earnestly they seek it. Today, life-changing truth is only readily available should a man happen upon a site such as this. Most men are unaware of women's true nature. And the minority who are aware dare not discuss the elephant in the room, for doing so may come at incredible cost. Number two, the cultural battle of the sexes. The number of men aware of the realities inherent to female nature continues to dwindle, whilst the cultural hysteria touting men are evil and women can do no wrong reigns pervasively. Men are taught to worship women, whilst women are taught to distrust men. Men are taught to serve women, whilst women are taught to deceive men. Society believes it morally reprehensible for a man to dupe a woman, and yet bears no such disdain when the polarity is reversed, often going to extreme lengths to rationalize aesthetically pleasing justifications for immoral female behavior. Before the emergence of red pill philosophy, no meaningful infrastructure existed to support and educate men on matters of women. And this is why what we do is crucial. We educate boys and men on matters nobody else is capable of and support them where nobody else cares. Culturally, there is a power imbalance, where the masculine has become so weak and the feminine has gotten so out of control that she threatens to destabilize civilization's very core with a tyrannic power she is not fit to wield. The Red Pill, as well as this very publication, does to the extent of its reach attempt to redress this imbalance by giving men the tools they need to exercise power and remain sovereign. Red pill philosophy is effective. It thoroughly details female behavior from numerous perspectives, sociologically, evolutionarily, and occasionally economically, to form a rich and comprehensive philosophy. However, having internalized much of this forbidden knowledge over the years, I wish to do something I do not believe has been done before. Unify the red pill understanding of women into a framework that depicts the relationships between the mechanisms that embody the feminine. When I was clueless about women, I'd have killed for an article like this. So if that sounds like you, strap yourself in, because you're in for a treat. You're going to learn what many men never learn, and what many others pay in pain and poverty to merely into it. Number three, solipsism's role in femininity. One cannot deny that women are vigorously interested in themselves and how men perceive them. Yet regardless, this passion does not translate into a meaningful philosophical inquiry on womankind by herself. As such, a woman's opinion of her sex is inseparably tied up with how she sees herself. To simplify, whatever a woman believes to be true of women is 99 out of 100 times something she believes to be true of herself. 
Solipsism leads women to believe the opinions they hold of themselves accurately represent the behaviors generalizable to their sex. Naturally, most women are oblivious to their flaws, and are, as a matter of ego, unwilling to even ponder the possibility they're not intrinsically wonderful. Most women do not realize the negative traits they possess should be rectified where possible, or otherwise mitigated, because they do not recognize themselves as having said undesirable qualities to begin with. Simply put, women lack self-awareness. They tend to deny their shortcomings rather than fix them. And this is why there is a substantial lack of bodies in the women's online self-improvement community. If you talk about the general nature of women to a woman, but you do not distinguish between her and most women, she will almost always lump herself in with most women and fail to make the distinction between herself and women as a whole. This leads her to constantly miss the forest for the trees, stating that she was in a similar situation and she was never like that when you generalize her sex. Now, whilst it is certainly possible the woman you're talking to may be the exception to something, it is more likely that she is not, but believes in all delusional earnest that she is. Because she follows her feelings, and it feels better for her to believe she's different than to be aware of her shortcomings, she will believe an aspect of her behavior immune to generalization, even when her behaviors confirm the generalization. You may even remember a time when the woman you're talking to embodied the exact generalization you're asserting. And yet, like a crazy person with amnesia, she will claim to be nothing like that. This is another function of solipsism. A woman's preoccupation with the self is mirrored by an utter lack of self-awareness of what said self consists of. And so it is only in the grand denial of a woman's solipsism that if she believes there's nothing wrong with her, then there's nothing wrong with women either. If she believes she's not like that, then she incorrectly concludes that most women aren't like that either. It is the observation that nearly all women will unironically say, not all women are like that, that gives away the feminine solipsistic point of reference, that a woman will attempt to differentiate herself as superior when in competition. But should you criticize women in general, suddenly her ability to make distinctions between herself and her group vanishes. In juxtaposition, if something negative is said about men, most men can simultaneously weigh up whether the generalization applies to men as a group, and if it does, if it applies to them. They do not constantly conflate opinions of their sex with opinions of themselves, and so unlike women, are not reflexively offended by negative statements made about their sex if an element of that statement is based in reality. Naive men believe women must be experts on women, because being women themselves, they know all about women. Such a belief is folly, and no more than a reflection of a man's naivety, for it assumes women are abstractive rather than solipsistic, that is, more interested in the truth than being purposefully ignorant in order to maintain an optimum level of happiness. This couldn't be further from the truth. When women talk about women, they project rather than investigate, because they're prone to emotional solipsism, not rational investigation. Solipsism is the core base of all female behavior. It is the intrinsic way of being, the very foundation on which the female's other psychological aspects spawn. Women with little power and low self-esteem are solipsistic and prone to infantile narcissism. 
whilst those with high self-esteem and great power are grandiosely narcissistic. The latter meaning they possess a characteristically masculine air of arrogant attachment. Where solipsism is her internal dialogue and mode of thought, its external counterpart is infantile narcissism, women's insecurity of her relative inferiority to man and dependence on men. If one analyzes the thinking of the feminist movement for a second, a great part of it fixates on empowering women by granting them independence. This suggests a few things. That firstly, women do not possess the ability or desire to take independence for themselves, and so need powerful politicians to legally mandate it. And secondly, that the feminist fixation with independence is a macro-manifestation of female insecurity. This is to say that women are all too aware of their reliance on men for both economic and emotional support, and that collectively, rather than be grateful for man's magnanimity, a great deal despise it. The saying, no good deed goes unpunished, seems apt here. Women are deadly, yet needy. They have always needed men, still do, and most likely always will. And yet it is in the infantile stubbornness of femininity that a resentment brews for this biologically ordained neediness. Even the women who do well to provide for themselves end up requiring a man who earns more than they, who is mentally stronger than they, and so on. A woman is hypergamous by her very nature, and thus, much to the disdain of her insecurity, requires male superiority in order to even find men attractive. The topic of feminine infantile narcissism presents the perfect opportunity to explore why women are more inherently cunning than men. It is because women are so incredibly aware of their heightened neediness relative to men that they develop an intrinsic penchant for cunning. They are all too aware the depth and breadth of assistance they require from the opposite sex is greater than the inverse. And so it is in this position, in large part, which fuels their motive for manipulating as a way of life. Women are in a position of neediness, and yet, they cannot fully trust men to give them what they need. So they manipulate men in order to give them what they want, but then resent the men who fall prey to such devices. This phenomena alone should explain to you the mental hell women occupy, and explain much of their external craziness. Even the sweetest, kindest, best-raised woman is a cunning creature. For it is in the insecurity inherent to reliance that a woman protects herself via the impassioned practice of cunning. I believe that where na 